To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch buck? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, what's happening, guys? Got a brand new podcast for you. So this week I have back on Marlon Holton. Uh, so Marlon is Gray Light Hunter on Instagram, and um, the guy is just an absolute mule deer fanatic. Uh, he really specializes in hunting mule deer with his bow and arrow, and this is just a great in-depth conversation. Uh, Marlon had a heck of a season. Uh, he harvested uh, multiple different bucks that w- that were all next level bucks. Um, one non-typical. Uh, we talk about this great big wide heavy one he harvested, and um, he's just had a heck of a season as he does each and every year, and that's through his preparation and and um, you know through his his mindset and then time of field, and so he's just got great insight into hunting mule deer in all different habitats. Uh, from high country to desert to foothills, and so we just dive right into it. I, uh, Marlon was nice enough to to do a long podcast with me because I knew we'd have a bunch to talk about. So this podcast is over two hours long. The timing is just awesome for hunting. Uh, you know, if you're hunting one of the the Arizona January hunts down there, because we talk about desert hunting and desert tactics quite a bit. Uh, as, as I'm also trying to learn down there, uh, trying to get better at this desert habitat. It's, it's one of the last ones I have, or I shouldn't say that. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to improve, you know, all my skill sets and all these different habitats, but it's the one habitat in my game that needs the most work. Uh, so I really pick his brain about desert hunting and then, yeah, I was able to apply some of these tactics that we talked about. I recorded this before I went down with my family down in AZ, and so uh, I did not bring my bow down there. Uh, I just knew, you know, I really wanted to spend quality time with my family, and uh, if I got my bow in my hands, uh, I knew that would take over. <laughs> so uh, I made the smart choice, left my bow at home, spent some great time with my family, but able to get some great runs in the desert and then able to scout some new areas. Uh, I'd wake up early in the morning and take off and and uh, go make a vantage point. And gosh, I found one just great big desert troll, big heavy dark horn mule deer, uh, and he was rutting does already, you know. And it was um, late December when I was down there, so um, yeah, super fun to to be able to put some more pieces to the puzzle together and get just a a touch better at that desert habitat. And then I have a desert hunt coming up. Um, so I actually take off uh, Friday morning. And um, gosh, look at that. It's a podcast and uh, the host doesn't turn his phone off. Uh, so please ignore the phone ringing in the backdrop. Just trying to get started with uh, construction work and everything else I got going on. But uh, I'll go ahead and call him back. Uh, it's just a this this podcast is so fun for me and so fun to have a guest on like Marlon that that is willing to share information that's helped make him successful over the years and so there is so much great insight in this podcast in fact as i release this uh i'm going to listen back to this podcast on my drive as well uh just to uh, be able to take my own notes and and be able to learn from this podcast because um, he's so proficient. He's really dedicated himself, and I just have a ton of respect for for what he does. Um, especially, you know, 
you know, being that, you know, the bow is one of the, the toughest ways to harvest mature animals. And he's dedicated himself to the craft of bow hunting and um, dedicated himself to the craft of hunting mule deer. He's just fallen in love with it. So this is just a great conversation. I uh, want to thank a uh, sponsor for today's show, uh, Zamberlin Boots. So Marlin is also using Zamberlin Boots. Uh, Zamberlin just has the the highest quality as far as materials, as far as craftsmanship. Uh, I've never had a boots, a pair of boots that have stayed waterproof. Uh, my boots stay waterproof. Um, I'm still using a pair of boots that are two years old where I have the bottoms pretty much worn flat on them. I don't know how many miles I have on them, but they're still holding up and they're still waterproof. Uh, they're just absolutely amazing boots. Uh, I tend to go on the lighter sides as far as boots, and I really like tennis shoes as well. And so um, they also have a, a set of tennis shoes, but my favorite boots that, that they make um, are these. Uh, uh, let me pull up the website here. I. Um, they're the 320 Trail Light Evo GTXs. Uh, man, these things are just amazing. Lightweight. They're a low-height boot. If I wear my gaiters on them, I can keep dry in snow conditions, rain conditions. And I just like that lighter weight, low-cut boot. It's just a, a good fit for my style of hunting. Um, I also really like their their Hike Light. Uh, what are they? The Hike Light 103 GTX. So there's, those are their, their tennis shoes that they run, um, and they're just a burlier shoe. And these things have been super impressive as well. Like, I wear these things to work. I wear them running. I wear them hunting. I love wearing these shoes, and they hold up to over a year of abuse from me. Uh, so I'm just so impressed at, at these uh, different styles of boots and tennis shoes that Zamberlin has come up with. And they have a bunch of different models that you can try out and find one that fits your personal preferences. Uh, some people like stiffer boots. Uh, some some people like, uh, um, like uh, uh, higher cut boots. Um, some people like more ankle support. So you, you can find the perfect boot. Uh, for your style of hunting and and I just really believe Zamberlin is making the absolute best boots on the market uh, I did that podcast with Zamberlin that was so impressive um, you know just talking about their process and and then their commitment to quality and craftsmanship and they just don't cut any corners they they're not buying inexpensive materials they're spending the most to get to build you the very best boots. So I'm just so impressed by by their boots and then also impressed by the company. So if you're in the market for some new boots, make sure to check them out. And like I say, um, Marlin is using Zamberlin boots exclusively as well and absolutely loves them. So um, we'll get right into this podcast. Uh, yeah, I just appreciate all the support from Eastman's, um, you know, with this and, and other endeavors. I just had that new film come out. You can check that out on Eastman's Hunting TV on YouTube. So that's our Beyond the Grid series, which uh, we, we put out things on the Internet for everybody to see. Uh, super proud the way it came out. Uh, it's um, Open Country Mule Deer is the latest one uh, just released. And then um, so you guys get to watch me miss my big sticker buck in there. And then watch me talk into the camera as I'm just absolutely crushed. 
and uh, then go home and pick myself up and um, give up a few days of elk hunting to go back and, and try to harvest a buck. And uh, spoiler alert, uh, able to harvest a really nice buck and make a perfect shot. And it just meant the world to me. And that's really what kicked off my season. And then I went on quite a run after missing that sticker buck. So uh, it's part of my season and part of my story. And it's part of bow hunting. And I think it's important to share the highs and the lows. Uh, So many of these films are almost like hero films where... uh, Nobody ever makes a mistake or things don't go wrong. And, and that's just not the reality of things, at, at least not for me. Um, so, you know, I, I have misses. I try not to have them eat me up, but, uh, you know, it happens. And so uh, I think it's an important film that shares the ups and downs of bow hunting. Uh, my buddy Dan Heverin makes his first film appearance. Um, so uh, able to film him on a couple stocks and, and uh, have some fun with, and some laughs with him. So uh, make sure to check that out. And um, man, with that, got some great podcasts coming up. This one was an awesome one. I really enjoyed this one. And uh, I got a couple more that are coming for you that I'm really excited about. So just trying to, to record the absolute best, most pertinent information to help you guys become better Western hunters. And uh Throughout this, I'm able to learn as well, uh, and, and it's it's making me a better hunter. Uh, so, man, I've been getting in my runs lately and, and um, doing my map research, looking into tags and things I want to apply for next season, and uh, just living that, that bow hunting lifestyle that I absolutely love. So, um, man, I am out of here on Friday. Uh, I will be out of here as this podcast is released. Um, so yeah, I'll be chasing Muley's heart. So you think of me as you're listening to this and, and, uh, hopefully I'm putting some stocks on some next level bucks and, and, uh, hopefully we can get it done down there. So, um, super pumped just to, to go on a, uh, another extended, uh, mission and, and, and go chase my, my favorite species mule deer around and, and, uh, go get after him and find a big old heavy, hopefully. So, all right, you guys. Uh, Let's get into this podcast. Marlon Holden, this is Eastman's Elevated. I'm your host, Brian Barney. Here we go. For sure. No, I hear you. Hopefully you're, you're busy. You're full speed, right? Yeah, yeah, we're doing good. Um, we've we've weathered well during this time. Um, COVID has has um, you know it it's it's given people this realization that they don't want to be around the mass populations anymore, and so there's this max this mass exodus to to these rural places like Montana, and people are finally saying I've had enough. I'm moving to my dream spot, and so they're moving to places that I live in, like Montana right now. So. Uh, building is an absolute boom um, as far as the podcasts have just been going great because I can do them remotely like I'm doing with you on these calls. And and, and it seems like, um, you know, even though people aren't uh, traveling as much in their vehicle or they're not commuting as much, they're still taking in this media podcast because it is such a great media that you can listen to it while you're active doing things or while you're traveling. Um, so, so podcasts have been good. There's still a lot of downloads, so that that's worked really well. And then, like I say, the building's booming and um, hunting industry. Like uh, uh, people realize uh, they've been locked down and they need something to do. And hunting's never been more popular. And so, you know, everything on that side has been doing well. Um, so, so I've fared 
I've fared better than most during COVID for sure. I'm really, really glad to hear that. That's good. That's really good. Um, I, I can't, uh, I can't say that we've done, you know, horrible. I think that, uh, all things considered, um, you know, I, I have some, some quite incredible partners in the hunting world, uh, that we're doing some really amazing things with that I'm super excited about that, you know, you'll be seeing soon. Um, and, uh, and a lot of other projects that we're just really putting a lot of focus on that have been really exciting. Um, like every, every, I think every, you know, door that closes and, and certainly may not necessarily close, but seem like it's a difficult journey. There's always other ones that open if you are, um, continuously seeking to, to find ways and methods to create value. And I think that if you're creating value, uh, you'll always have something great to do. So I find this period of time, uh, you know, for a lot of inward reflection, um, a time to uh, create value for people and do the things that I love. And really, at the end of the day, focus on, on a lot of the things that I really enjoy. Uh, and, and art is, is certainly one of those things that I love, you know, tremendously. We're working on some really amazing um, collateral content collateral pieces with some incredible hunting partners so excited about that and really you know look forward to, to showing you some of the stuff that we're doing here in the next year coming up um but uh look like you had a really amazing season man i mean like t- that elk i mean i know you you know you're probably trying to ask me some questions but i want to ask you a question dude that elk was freaking huge tell me <laughs> about that hunt Oh, thanks so much, Marlon. Um, yeah, it was an amazing season. Um, it's just, uh, at, at this point now, like I've been able to structure my life around bow hunting. And so now I'm just able to get the time to really chase my passions and cut loose and to cut loose without reservations or without having to worry how I'm going to pay my bills or uh, not having to worry if my family's okay or taken care of. You know, I've gotten to this place where, you know, not like I'm wealthy, but financially stable where I know I can pay for things and I know I can take the time off work. And then I have the right people in place that I can trust to handle things while I'm gone. So I don't have this stress load on my shoulders. So I'm able to to go on all these adventures in all these different places and really go after it wholeheartedly, you know, in my research, in my game plan, and then show up prepared and go all in. And, and that's really where I'm at my best and I'm, I'm really soaking in living my best life. Like I, I just, um, I, I, I'm able to go for it. I'm able to put big miles in and you said it at the start of the conversation that, that anything worth having, you know, takes hard work. And, um, I just love working hard towards those goals. So to see it come to fruition on an elk hunt like that, sharing it with a couple of my good buddies and kind of splitting up every day and hunting solo and then, you know, having a trying season, but just not letting it, letting it get to me. Like, um, heat checking a bunch of my spots with my buddies, you know, hoping to get into that el- epic elk rut and just not quite finding it. The elk just aren't there and they're, you know, they're, um, they're, uh, nomadic by nature. And so even the best elk spots aren't good all the time. Those elk move through there. And so heat checking these spots and couldn't really find them. And so, you know, it forced me to take that that perspective or take that um that 
that heck they're they're not in the spots where I know them to be you know now I get this chance or this opportunity to go explore some of this different country I've been looking at and researching great you know and so started diving in, into these vast tracts of land that I've always wanted to get to and sure enough turned up that giant bull and then able to hunt them for a couple days in there and then I've just, uh, you know, like you, and I can't wait to get into some of this mule deer stuff, but I've just, um, I, I've been able to, um, I, I've been able to, to learn through failure and to further my, my hunting skill to a place now to where I can really make good on these opportunities when I come across them. So like coming across this giant bowl, um, just knowing, you know, when the right time is to close in and, and when there's a time when I should really stay back and not push it, not be aggressive because he does have a bunch of cows and he does have two satellite bulls. And so um, it was just able to, to make the right moves and have confidence in myself that I could make the right moves and harvest this bull and then have it all come together and have him, you know, round the corner and kind of follow him to his bed and see that opportunity present itself and then capitalize on it and put a perfect arrow through that bull to, to be my best bull to date. So yeah, man, it's just absolutely awesome. It's been an incredible season. And, and likewise, I have had so much fun following along on your journey this year. And I've seen your hunts pay off for you time and time again, but it seems like your hunting is reaching another level as well. Um, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll start with what you were just saying and, uh, about, you know, your bull and, and just this, this, I guess, niche that we're in, um, this, this love of the lifestyle of bow hunting. I mean, no, sometimes it's, it's, almost breathtaking because um i'll come full circle and, and i'm trying to just organize my thoughts a little bit but you know i was driving down what was a very 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 long stretch a couple solid couple hours going um probably a little over the speed limit <laughs> um <laughs> looking at this just pristine winter range right and you know, a lot of things went through my head. Uh, a lot of things that as I get older, I'm proud of. Um, I saw, you know, these, what looked to be about nine foot fences, something like that. It was about nine feet. Um, and then, you know, the, uh, those game, the game fence basically that, that stops the herd from migrating across the highway and getting slaughtered during bad winters. Um, and then you see the, uh, the little sections that are cut out for them. If they happen to somehow get on the highway, they can jump back down and, and get back onto the range. And then, you know, you'll see the, the bridges and the underpasses and the overpasses, um, that they can migrate across and knowing that, you know, DO, like the DOT or, uh, any type of trans authority does not fund that, that no, knowing that you know, conservation is the practice, is the ethic here. Knowing that the models that have been created by people that came before us that were smart enough to say, hey, they need our help. And then, you know, people like us that step forward and, and, and say, wow, I really love the outdoors as a result of 
what we love so much in the outdoors that we're able to not hamper, but facilitate those efforts. And that, you know, the bucks that I've arrowed, the bucks and the bull that you arrowed, those are, that's a direct reflection and that complex nature by which ties us all together as con- conservationists and outdoorsmen that really kind of put it really in, in a greater view. I, I was driving down that stretch of road to make a long story made uh, short, smiling, thinking, you know, I arrowed a, a fantastic buck um, on public land and you know, everything that we do, people often ask, well, how can you shoot something that you love so much? And it's like, I love them so much that I don't know if I could live without them. And I love to, you know, eat them. Like there's nothing like I've been on this binge of eating nothing but venison for like the last, you know, I mean, almost every meal for like the last month. And I keep posting these things on my stories, you know, about these different recipes and stuff that we're doing and whatnot. But um, it's like this full circle and you see the conservation effort like real time you're driving by it you see you know the antlers on your pack or or the pictures and then you you share this sentiment with your friends and you you couldn't call them colleagues but fellow outdoorsmen but we're patriotic in that love of the outdoors and we're proud of our support through acquiring our licenses and doing it the way that we're supposed to be doing it like there's this just great fulfilling thing in it um, and I think it all ties back into like, you know, what a great season you had. Um, I feel like I had one heck of a good season, um, you know, and, and I just, I don't know. It's something that just is so passionately overwhelming the older I get to see all those little loose ends with regard to, you know, well, how do I tie into conservation and what's that look like? Uh, you, you don't really know what that looks like until you just, sit down and start thinking about it and then you see the efforts and then you start tuning in a little bit more to what all the fish and game um, management communities are doing across each state across the nation and you sit there and go wow we're you know really are a part uh, of something that's pretty special and um, if if our tag and the money that we spend on our tag and license whether we're successful or not goes towards helping something we love so much which we all well know that during bad winters, I mean, tens of millions of these animals die and perish from things that are predominantly man-made or caused, you know, whether it's roadways or uh, winter range and stuff like this. Nice to know that, you know, we're doing something about it on the other end of it. And, and it's really a fulfilling kind of a thing to see that full, full cycle. I'm not sure really what, prompted me to talk about that but it was a very gratifying thing to go down the highway and and seeing um you know part of of what we do even if it's a small part but together we can become a movement and do something really great and the reward of it is being able to, t- to spend that time outdoors on a mountain uh you know from september or august whenever your season starts <clears throat> when it's hot uh, or early season up high when it's green with flowers everywhere and those different settings through the year that fill your heart with this overwhelming sensation of joy and, and, you know, knowing that our time is finite on this, this earth, being able to like be captivated by those moments, totally enraptured in the gravity of how special and the magnitude of how amazing they are. 
Um, and then knowing that, you know, you were out there doing that and, and our friends that we love and, and care about, and we look forward to hearing from every year that they're out there doing that. And, and it's really nice to know that, the, that, you know, you're really not alone, that there's this huge group of people that, um, that, that love watching the sun come up, that, you know, put their headlamp on and, and get all their gear and prepare all year and then, you know, start start their way up the ridge to try and, you know, share and enjoy and be invigorated by that experience. Pretty cool. Man, it's the coolest. And I, I love our conservation model here as it's a huge success story, as it's not just limited to to the rich or it's not just limited uh, uh, to, a, to a special group of people, that it's available to all of us out there, you know, and it's it's really, you know, if you budget for it, no matter what job you hold down, it it's feasible for all of us to go on these adventures. And, and yeah, um, it, it is this amazing journey. And, and the other, like, I found my passion and you found your passion and my passion is bow hunting. And, and really, you know, I've thought about this a lot as well as, like like bow hunting, you know, it's not everything to me. I have family and I have I have other obligations, but bow hunting means so much to me. And bow hunting, because I have so much passion for it, it's become my vehicle through life to experience all these different emotions. Like uh, you talked about hiking up the ridge at at daybreak and seeing the sunrise and the you know this this vehicle of bow hunting has taught me so many life lessons and it it's the vehicle in life at which i experience uh you know uh, heartache and which i experience redemption and i i experience hardships and and tough times and um you know which test my revolt my resolve and and test my discipline and my dedication so here I found this vehicle that I absolutely love that takes me through life and lets me experience all these different emotions to the to the most extreme level. Like um, there isn't much in life that makes me shout out for joy, but when it all comes together and I do place a perfect arrow and not, you know, it's not, you know, there's definitely uh, uh, different feelings that come over me at those times and some of them. You know, aren't the most pleasant feelings of taking a life of an animal I truly love, but to feel that that joy of accomplishing my goal, you know, there's not much in life that does that for me like bow hunting does. And so bow hunting has just given me this vehicle to experience all these different things in life and the most extreme feelings a human can have through this love of bow hunting, which is just wild. And so, yeah, it's nice to know that other people have that same passion and to watch this podcast grow and people connect with that passion has been amazing to, to watch people connect with your passion and your social media, your videos that you put out your camp you did last year. That's amazing. There's guys that have this same passion that resides in them and a guy with with passion is a guy with purpose as well. It gives you purpose in your life to wake up every day and be excited about it every day to be working harder, to be better in the mountains and better prepared for these situations and to have it not be financial based or chasing money. It's all for the joy of life. You know, it's, it's just been amazing for me. So I feel those same emotions uh, that you feel like driving down the winter range, you know? So yeah, man, I mean, you just had an absolutely incredible season. Um, you were able to travel around and, and harvest, um, man, just some amazing bucks. That that one late season buck that you harvested was just tremendous. I mean, they they've all been every deer that you've harvested, but that that one heavy wide one, oh my gosh, that thing takes my breath away. 
I think I've been caught staring at that picture uh, more than I should, but it's just such a tremendous animal. And, and like you say, that is the, the proof that our conservation is working, that a deer can grow that old on public lands. And it gives me, you know, hope for the future for sure. You're, you're talking about that uh, big, wide, heavy tip, typical, right? Yeah, yeah. And I know you've harvested a couple yeah. of really nice bucks since him, but uh, that typical – uh, he's just the exception, not the rule. I mean, deer get older and deer get bigger, but that one has it all. He's got genetics, uh, age. He's got uh, mass. It's just a, it's just an incredible deer. Yeah, he's he actually, you know, really surprised me. I mean, we 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 talk about the philosophy of the hunt and like what brings us, you know, together in it and why we do it and all that, and, and then we talk about things like you know, the hunt and the first time we lay eyes on them. And it's funny because I, I scout out there. Gosh, I mean, I'm, I'm probably there over 40 days before I even set my boots on the ground with a bow in my hand. Like I, I work it so diligently and I work it so hard and I pay attention to the rain and I pay attention to the feed and I, I just pay attention to everything. So it's that way, uh, I literally know where everyone else is going to be and I know where I'm going to be. And, you know, when I show up, um, I, it's almost like a playbook that I, it's almost like a screenplay that you almost write out before it happens. Like people often say, well, you know, I, I don't know how you can, you know, just go out there and just, you know, find one and da 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 da. That, that's just, that's not even possible. It's kind of like, yeah. Uh, beg to differ like after you spend so much time out there just like you you know you do um it becomes this it's a synchronicity you 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 like really know the land and you know why they live where they live and why they're there when they're there and they may not be there all the time the funny part about you know some of these areas that i go into is there won't be an animal there all year only a certain time of year they'll show up so you you know you get people scouting all over the place looking all over dropping boot leather and 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 until you spend enough time in there to know why they're there you won't know why they're there until you're there when they're there and 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 understanding why it is that they're there and i and i for one i'm not about to reveal those (laughs) (laughs) particular secrets but but it's like it's so amazing to watch how they use the country and why they use the country. And then when you get in there, and then you know, for me, all the preseason stuff is all about inventory. It's all about knowing what my expectation set should be prior to going into it to know whether or not if I see a certain animal that that's the one I'm going to go after or if I'm going to hold off. Really, that's that's kind of like what my pre scouting really is. And and he, you know that buck you're right he is special for where he is he should not he shouldn't be i mean he just i don't know i i go to a lot of different states and i travel extensively to try and harvest mature animals and he's just kind of like he's the exception not the rule for sure um the deer has you know just shy of 43 inches of mass he's 30 and three eighths wide. Like his eye guards, the shortest eye guard is four and three quarter inches. His longest eye guards, like five and a half. And 
just got this frame. I mean, it's just in your hands. It's just got like crazy mass. I mean, I've never shot a deer that felt like that in my hands. And when I saw my, like, you know, my jaw freaking basically hit the deck, I'm like, what the heck? And because I had never seen this deer before. I'd seen a bunch of other bucks and, and, you know, a couple other deer that I was really considering going after. There was a six by five out there with a giant hook cheater. It had like a 10 inch hook cheater on it. And just mass, like gobs of mass with five inch, matching identical five inch eye guards on a 27 inch frame. I mean, I was like, okay, I'm, that, that's originally the buck that, you know, that I was going after. And he um, was also going to be like a, a lot of bone, like great scoring type of deer. But when I saw this one, I'm like, all bets were off. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'm not. I can't even believe what's in my scope right now. I'm going to sit here and watch it for a couple hours, see what he does. Um, luckily, he didn't go up over to the top of any ridges or disappear into any nasty drainages. He just sat along that morning and just kind of hung out. And, you know, he went out of sight down into the bottom of the drainage. I'm like, well, he's, you know, he's not going anywhere. That's that's where he's going to be. And um, I spent, we got up onto him um it was late morning and I sat there on this rock for over four hours waiting to see exactly what the wind was going to do, exactly what my approach needed to be and exactly where every single deer was at before. And I did that from about five, 600 yards away with the wind in my face before I committed to like, which way I'm going to go in on him. Cause I just, you know, you get one chance. At an animal like that, generally speaking, you get one chance. And, and once they feel pressure, their chances you see them again in, in you know, conditions with, with you know, good light on them where you have time for a stock is, is – and I had all day. I found them right at first light, and I had all day and, and watched them bed. It, I just knew it was – that was the opportunity. And um, working in on that animal the whole time, I kind of – have a tendency not to really think about antlers um and and especially when i shoot i don't even think about antlers but you know watching him through the scope was such a cool spectacle just watching him kind of feed and when he looked away and started feeding away that's when you're like oh my god <laughs> you never want to look at one looking away and he was one of those ones you look at away and you just look like a goalpost like a just a giant linebacker freaking huge mass palmed everywhere and just kind of feeding you in the sun hitting his rack and because of the uh the vegetation out there you know the antlers are pretty white so you can see them really well and i'm like mile and a half away watching this thing and kind of in disbelief and you know all i could think of was okay i gotta get a little closer so that way i can watch this thing better and um I mean, you want to talk about a memorable hunt, but I took my time that morning. I really took my time. I'm like, he's not going anywhere. I'm really going to just make sure that I get the wind right. I want the thermals right. I want that diurnal shift fully switched in. You know, I don't want to have, in the even in the mountains, you know how it shifts on you. Um, I just wanted to try and eliminate every possible scenario I could, and I wanted that wind running up my face Uh up into my face when I peeked over the edge. And so it wasn't till early afternoon because I, I don't like making the stock last into, you know, once you start getting into like that three, 
three thirty, four o'clock, it starts, you know, it's, it's starting to get a little, little iffy on what the wind's going to do. So I, I like being in them in that one to three wheelhouse, 1230 to three o'clock kind of wheelhouse is where I like to be in the early season. Um, anyway, long story made short. I mean, it, it was, it was not a super technical stock in that I was able to use the terrain and uh, stay behind ridges. And then I popped over one ridge to get down into the drainage. There was about a 500-yard section that was loose, and you'd slide all over the place. It was a little bit loud, and we're about uh, 450 to 500 yards away from the deer. But I had to go side ridge, so basically I couldn't go straight at him. So... I had to, even though I was 500 yards away from him, the ridge I had to go up to was a drainage that I had to go up and then cut across to him. So it was a one of those things where I was kind of exposed for a little bit, um, but it was the only play we had, and I felt pretty pretty safe with it. And then we worked our way up um, to the edge of a saddle, peeked over, and there he was bedded. I mean, literally, that, he had probably five does with him. Um, and, uh, yeah, he was just bedded broadside right there. And I shot him in his bed. <laughs> like I didn't even wait. I'm like, this is, this is, this is a done deal. I absolutely pinwheeled him on the first shot and all the deer went flying all over the place and he wasn't with him. I'm like, okay. And I knew he ran down, but I didn't see him. And so I took a few steps forward, uh, with an arrow already knocked and kind of like looked around, didn't see anything. I took one step forward. And then boom, there he was, you know, below me to the left. I ranged him again and I hit him again and he fell to the ground. And I'm the kind of person you call, you can call me impatient all you want, but if, if an animal's still moving, like I'm still shooting. Um, so I've been known to like, even if I have a good shot on an animal, I'll, I'll definitely put, you know, one or two more if I can, as, as long as an animal's moving, I'm shooting. And, uh, so I put uh, another couple arrows into that deer before I walked up into it, and then and I and, and then you know I gave it probably 25 minutes. I was still had my eyes on the animal, so I, he wasn't going anywhere. I just wanted to give him some time. Once he was kind of like not moving, laying there, and, and walking up to him was a pretty pretty rad, pretty rad thing. You know, I mean, it's I don't know, it's it's a as much as I don't shoot only for score, I shoot for the hunt, the, I, I shoot for the memories, I shoot for the, the adventure and the thrill of the hunt and that, that chase and, and it's all part of, you know, providing food for the table. And there's so much that goes into it that I can't call it one thing, but, you know, when you, when you do walk up on an animal that is, significantly bigger than most of what you shoot um there's a real there's a particular thrill involved with that that uh really took my breath away on that hunt so it was it was yeah beyond memorable for sure oh man i'd say what a surreal experience you did so much right in in that you know leading up to that buck i mean 
even when you started talking 40, 40 days scouting one area for the buck you're going to harvest in that area. That's amazing. That's putting your time in into the field. And I love what you said about understanding the landscape and how the deer use that landscape. And you're so spot on about timing. You know, my best rut spots, you can go scout them in the early season and you can hardly find a deer there, but they show up during the rut. And and same thing with some of my mule deer spots for pre-rut or or even you know prior to pre-rut even when they're in that october lull up here like i know where those bucks want to hang out they want to be you know more isolated and they they want to be in in like um you know they're they're not going to be making these mistakes or in these closer drainages they're in these real secluded basins and they're really using the cover to their benefit and they're really in places where they don't get bothered where they can hang out with other bucks and live out their days and not get spooked so uh, first off i love what you said about learning how the deer use that landscape and you're right it's not just about scouting or boot leather or walking around like you have to be walking around during that right time to catch those deer or knowing those deer are going to show up. So I I thought that was great. And then uh, like you finding that buck and realizing what a good buck it was. And I I think it was meant like you used all your years of knowledge, all your years of paying your dues, all your years of making stocks on bucks and maybe sometimes pushing bucks or pushing a little too fast, too hard, too early and spooking that deer and I'm also glad to hear that you say that you get one chance at a deer like that. Like, I don't kill every big deer that I find. It seems like you get one chance, one play, and if you don't get it right or if circumstances, the wind switches or you don't make the right call when to stalk that buck or when to go all in and you spook them, boy, I have a hard time finding that buck again. Now, sometimes I'll locate a buck again, but the majority of times, if I find one of that caliber or that giant caliber like that, you get one chance. And so it almost feels like it was meant to be for you, Marlon, like you had paid your dues and built this skill set, and now you locate this big deer, and now you're going to use all this knowledge you've gained over the years to do absolutely everything you can to put every variable variable on your side of things. So I loved what you said, like making, letting that wind make that, that transition to those uphill thermals. And you're right, that 9 to 11 o'clock is dicey. Like it may feel like you've got an uphill thermal and it may feel like you've got sunshine down on the valley floor, but that wind will change on you. Like it is not your friend at 9 to 11. As well, it's not your friend, you know, 4.30 and beyond like you were stating. You know, that's where it starts to switch again, you know, as those hillsides start to get shaded and that that wind starts to swap around. So you used all that to your benefit and you didn't rush it. And then you also said, I wanted to... wanted to figure out where every deer was in that basin so not letting one of those random does or one of those random small bucks that beds away from the group not letting that deer bust you like really taking your time to take inventory of the whole basin before you moved in and and then you know just your knowledge of the stock and moving in on those things of being able to use that landscape you know, to your benefit. And, and like you talked, it was loud moving in, but you were able to use this ridge line and you were a drainage over for noise cover coming down that thing. That's so important. And then, you know, being able to use that topography and pop right up on the right spot and then see that deer in our bed. And I, 
I always remembered from our last conversation you telling me that you like to shoot deer in their bed. You don't like to wait for them to get up. Like if you have a shot, you want to take it because things can go wrong and things can switch. And um, I carried that with me from our last conversation and tried to implement that into my hunting a little bit more of being more aggressive and trying to find that shot in his bed. So then you taking the shot at that buck and making a good shot on him. And uh, I, I feel the same way. If that animal is still moving, I will run another arrow through him. And same, uh, I shot a, a good bull in Idaho this year. And um, same thing, I put a good arrow through him and he actually tumbled down the hill and when I went to go look over the ledge, he was laying there with his head up, and he caught two more arrows right in the lungs before he could stand up or do anything. Because uh, I, yeah. I just, um, you know, bow hunting is such a like an arrow with a sharp broadhead is such a lethal killing tool. But but it's um you know things can go wrong with that as well. Angles can go wrong, and and I'm just not gonna leave that up to chance. If that animal usually when they're hurt bad enough to give you a second shot, they're gonna die from the first shot. But I am definitely gonna put an insurance shot into him because I've I've seen bad things happen. But man, I just love listening to that story in its entirety, Marlon. I I really think it's a combination of your skills coming together. At, at, at the type of hunter you are and then realizing the situation and creating that opportunity and making good on it, man, that's, that's just incredible. That's, um, that's what it's all about. You know, I, I think Brian, we have a couple of different, I, th I think we, we have a, a varied amount of listeners who, who listen to this. I think arguably it's the best podcast out there. Um, and, you know, we really get into like nitty gritty on a lot of, details on that so many people want to know that gosh i wish this was a resource when i was learning you know it would have been so great to be able to tap into being just kind of getting into the head a little bit of the people that you know uh are consistently successful and i think that you know there's so many people that listen to this that are that are like you and i they're just instincts there it's kind of you know might almost be like a nod in the head uh-huh uh -huh, totally get it uh-huh copy that roger like you know all the way down the pike understanding everything that happens and you know even thinking to themselves well, you know i can't really get anything from this but it's fun to listen to because you know i love hunting and whatnot and then there's the other person that you know is really just trying to, to you know they're, they're like gosh just hunting western big game is like the freaking toughest thing in the world like how on earth does anybody get close to these things like i i can remember how challenging i used to think it was i mean i thought it was you know this kind of impossible feat and you know like why would anybody uh, i i wouldn't think why would anybody because i never really doubted from the beginning that i wanted a bow hunt i think it was more um you know the the level of difficulty and it's still difficult, but it's gotten easier because I understand more. So I think to the person who is trying to pull something out of this, that's probably, I think, one of the best things that we can kind of maybe help with right now and say, here's a huge bullet point that would just be uh, amazing for you to stack in your, you know, bar of knowledge for anybody listening that really um, is trying to understand the game better. We, we get there, you know, we wake up at what, four in the morning, five in the morning, whatever it is, sometimes three in the morning. Uh, in this particular morning, uh, in order to get out to my particular area that I was at, I had to literally get up at uh, 1245, was in my truck by one. Um, so it seems, you know, kind of wild, but it was a long morning already. 
by the time the sun come, came up, you know, it's been a long morning. Everyone, you know, we're tired, right? Um, so when you see a buck bed down, you know, if you're new, your first inclination is going to be, oh, cool, bedded. Like, let's try and figure out what to do. It might only be like 8.30, 8.45. Um, and it's so important to know that, A, that's not his final bed, and B, the wind is not done playing devil's advocate with you like (laughs) nothing is settled right now and that's i think the biggest thing to learn from is that fools rush in and you know very little do we understand how fools can rush in until we really learn as we get older to sit back and analyze the situation and pull from it pieces that really can help us be more effective not not only hunting but just in life period it's always good to think before you talk or you know anything right it's always good to like if you're angry calm down before you say something or likewise if you're super 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 happy about a situation stop think about it let that subside and then make a rational decision so um you know in terms of of this if if you know you're curious well why do you wait so long and and you are new it's so important to know that the wind is is pretty much you know your Jekyll and Hyde. The wind is your best friend and your worst enemy. And they can be all of those things all at once. And she is a total Gemini that you cannot rely on whatsoever. But at the same time, you can count on her if you're paying attention. So that's a really hard lesson to try and grasp. It's one of the most challenging ones to like, figure out because you know you can look online all these apps and stuff and it says oh the wind's going to be blowing out of the southwest at you know 10 miles an hour today sweet you get there it's blowing out of the north you're like what the heck um so you know learn to not care so much about apps i know that tree stands and stuff are way different but you know and where your stand is and where you're going to sit based off of the wind and what stands good to sit on what wind but in the mountains like none of that stuff matters it's all out the window and everything's on the fly and you have to like basically just hunt the conditions and the best thing you can do to hunt the conditions is make sure you are patient with the wind. And I know you've been there since sunrise watching this animal and you know, you're excited to get your stock going, but I think what's going to kill more animals hands down than anything else is just being patient with your wind and you can get away as long as they can't see you, you can get away or see you or smell you. You can get away with a lot of noise. Like, I mean, it's normal for shale to crumble. It's normal for rocks to fall. It's normal for, for certain brush to break as long as it's not rapid, as long as it's not um, done in a way that is out of character with what's happening around them on a regular basis. You can get away with quite a bit of noise. Um, but wind, you just can't get away with it. And so, you know, to those really inquisitive about, hey, well, how do you get close to these things so often? It has everything to do with, being really patient you've already been patient all morning sit back have something to eat enjoy the view like really relax take your mind off of it now don't take your eye out of the scope you know, make sure if he gets up you know where he's going to go but take your mind off of you know being so worried about wanting to make sure you get that stock in right now wait till your conditions firm up and solidify a little bit better it puts you in a situation where you have a, a true opportunity to execute and that window like we were talking about earlier it's not a big window i mean you need to be in position so that that way you you can execute and and 
I'm going to say that nowadays most of my kills happen between noon and four. I think that that's, you know, I mean, there's some outliers where it's an ambush situation or you're, you know, cutting something off to a bed and, and those situations are a little bit different, but I try not to do that really anymore. I don't really, I don't really do that as much. Uh, you know, if it's my last day and it's the last little bit of light, I might get super aggressive and do something like that. But man, if I can, everything's in its bed and you know, it's, it's, it's dust from above, like every time if, if I can. And the wind is just the most critical component and more animals in your career, I think will die from noon to four bow hunting than just about anything else. And, and it could be different for everyone, but that's just been my experience. Um, you know, if they're up feeding or during the rut, when they're rutting, sometimes that can change because you're, you know, trying to play the does and you're really trying to get yourself in a position, just getting the wind right and kind of like, being on the outskirts of the herd waiting for your opportunity and hunting the rut for the elk are a little bit different too. But I mean, if you're trying to consistently arrow mature mule deer, I think that, that that's going to be like, you know, one of your golden tickets. And throughout the years, um, you, you built yourself a set of rules, and I think that's what's so difficult for guys to understand is I think they get out there. And I can remember when I started that these decisions are not black and white. They're really gray. And and can you kill a deer by being aggressive and cutting them off? Yes. But is it a higher percentage and higher opportunity to to wait for that buck and wait for a better situation? And most of the time the answer is yes. And I find in my bow hunting – you know, in my younger years, aggressiveness got it done for me a lot. And and it wasn't aggressiveness like trying to force the issue. It was more like see an animal, and no matter how far it was, no matter where it was at, I was trying to give myself a chance to kill that animal. And so I would be aggressive, but I also busted a lot of good animals over the years. And so throughout those years, I developed more patience to sit and watch, to let things develop, uh, to not push to failure, to really wait and see and, and I think that's what you did there. And you mentioned the wind. Um, the wind is one of those areas. And to kill that buck or to kill any of these bucks, there's a hundred different decisions that go into it that you have to get right that you don't even realize sometimes that you're making. They're almost subconscious. And they're built into your instincts and into your hunting skill. And your instincts and your hunting skill, they're – they're, they're this skill set that's learned through trial and error and learned throughout the years uh, uh, of messing things up and also getting things right. And then that goes in to build your hunting skill of what's right and wrong. And I think one of the powerful tools that you've built is you built a set of rules into your hunting, that things that you will and you won't do, situations that you're looking for, situations that you're avoiding. You're trying to avoid pitfalls that you've fallen into before by trying to stalk the animal too early in his first bed or trying to stalk the animal before you took tabs on all those deer or trying to stalk them when you didn't have that consistent win and so you built all these hard rules into your hunting and into your hunting instincts and so for you it becomes second nature at this point um but but i think that you know your point about the wind is such a powerful point and in the mountains or anywhere i'm hunting you know, I found that it's it's like getting this higher understanding of the winds and what they're doing, really having this higher understanding of the thermals and when they switch around. And, and not only an understanding, but knowing how they affect that mountain range and that basin you're hunting. And you do that by, like, really paying attention 
every day, all day, of paying attention to what the wind's doing and why is the wind doing that? Is that a directional I'm feeling or is that a thermal I'm feeling? And and the the wind apps, you're right, they're not going to tell you what's going off and going on in the mountains, but what they will give you is a dominant wind direction for the day. You know that okay, the winds are going to come around southwest for a directional wind. I'm going to look how it's going to affect those mountain ranges now, and if it's coming from the south. You know, I'm not going to hunt a basin that sits on the north is that wind's going to come over the top and wash your machine. And I've had to learn that hard lesson a bunch of times to not hunt deer on the lee wind side or to try to avoid it at all costs. I want to hunt them on the dominant wind side where I've got the thermals and the directionals working with me. And so, like, I, I think it's... I think it's a matter of just really paying attention to these details and really being cognizant of these decisions you're making. And then also, um, patience kills the buck. And what I learned in all my years of bow hunting, that aggressiveness helped me out in my younger years, but it screwed up a lot. And the, the more I bow hunt, just the more and more patient I become and the, the more and more methodical and planned out and really – realizing when I see a good situation or when I see a bad situation, like I know when it's time to go all in or I know when it's time to sit back and today (laughs) isn't the day to try to kill that buck. Do you feel that as well with your instincts? Dude, I mean, like, that's why I chuckled because I'm like, wow, man, it's so, when that opportunity presents itself, it's like, go, go, go. There's this thing in you that just says, go now, go. And it's, so loud you know and all the indecisiveness of all the the different questions we ask ourselves on a stock or you know in the middle of of a hunt it's amazing where those go moments are and they're so profound it's like somebody is telling you in a plain like in a very loud audible voice actually it's like go now like this is your opportunity go now like that just happened to me i mean it's happened on you know all of the hunts that i've ever been on but i remember on the very last hunt that I just killed that eight by eight, he was bedded. Um, and the wind was, so he was a smart deer. He would bed facing downhill over the basin. And then the wind would be coming in at his back. Uh, certain deer will bed with the wind in their face. And those ones are the easiest to kill. Um, but certain animals will, bed with and and unless unless the wind you know like i said does a jekyll and hide and and basically gives them up right they'll bed strategically with the wind at their back and they can see everything in front of them and that's a smart you know smart deer smart old deer i don't know if you've noticed this too will will feed downwind they won't feed upwind and um and, and likewise, they'll they'll bed facing you know opposite direction of the wind hitting their back. And this deer was one of those deer. And it's funny, I I was watching him, and I remember trying to figure out a stock, like trying to figure out a route. And I'm watching from uh, about 700 yards away, buried in the sage. You know, you can probably only see my spotting scope through the sage, trying to like figure out what I'm gonna do and. I'm not even kidding you, man. Like, and it was, a, it was a, a little over a four mile hike to get up and around. And we, and there were so many deer in there, you know, we're seeing over a hundred head a day. There's so many deer in there. And this one was hanging out with well over 20 animals, the bucks and does and yearlings. And it's just this big herd every single freaking day. And 
you know, going up to them on previous days, I had bumped him um, one time because I didn't, I went one ridge over instead of going three ridges over, you know, thinking, well, even if this deer bumps, it'll probably go, go up over here or go up over there. No, they, they don't do that. They all have each other's back, you know. Um, you bump a deer, and then they'll go right up over, and then <laughs> that one will run. So they'll all get up, and they'll run with them. And you're like, my Lord, like you, you, the, 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 the connectivity that they have, it's like they don't have Wi-Fi or Internet. But, man, they are all connected, and they all have each other's back. So, you know, we took a, a really long route like a route that was agonizingly like, you know, you kept them out of sight for too long. You're wondering if they're still there, you know, the, 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 all the different things that go through your head, but you're like, you trust in yourself that, you know, you put them to bed and you know, it was their final bed for the day. So they're going to be in that spot. They're not going anywhere. You know, it's, it's like the, the, the those type of questions start to wane and, and go away. And, and, you know, you, you have these other questions that come into your head. Okay. What's my route going to look like when I get there? Da, 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 and I, I can remember popping my head, you know, over the sage to kind of look at the basin and wondering how in the heck am I going to get in on this thing? Because the wind was at his back and he's overlooking the basin. I'm like, there's just no way. I can't come in from the side because he's got, you know, 25 deer there. They're going to win me from this, the edge of this rollover and, and it's not going to happen. And I'm not kidding you, dude, 15 minutes later, the wind totally freaking hit me at my back went straight up in his face and it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, the app said that it wasn't going to do that. Um, it said that it was going to be blown from the Southeast all day long and it, and it didn't, I mean, it switched out of the blue and it started blowing pretty hard. I mean, like 12 miles an hour gusts a little bit harder. I literally left all my crap right there. I got up as fast as I could with my bow and I started freaking running down the ridge. Like it wasn't even, it wasn't even a freaking question. I'm not joking you. I'm not joking you. Within 20 minutes, that deer was dead. <laughs> and that's that. I mean, like that's the difference. I shot him in his bed at 55 yards. I heart shot him. So I got up above him. I ranged his face, but his his neck and his his body. I could only see the upper part of his neck his antlers, his muzzle, uh, and, and, you know, his throat area. And then he was covered with this. I don't know what it, I don't know what it's called. It's uh, it looks like a rose hip kind of, it's got a spiky stem, like a rose. It even has this red little fleshy berry on it. It looks like a rose hip, but I'm sure, I don't think it is. There's one of those, uh, right kind of like over his back. And then there was a big pile of sagebrush in front of him. And I saw this hole, I'm not kidding you, this hole was like four inches in diameter, like a little bit bigger than a tennis ball. And I'm visualizing, I have my binoculars up and I'm visualizing, I'm like, okay, I can see where his back end of his ham is. I can see his front two legs where the, you know, where they're folded and bent and creased in front to where they're in front of him, propping him up. So I knew where anatomically where he was, but I couldn't see all of it. But it's like this thing, this a fifth sense, like you just kind of, you know where his goodie baskets are. And this hole happened to be like 
right there, man. I could see, you know, the dark part of his fur right there for his hair, but I couldn't see his whole body. I'm like, there's six bucks and him bedded here with 18 or more does right, you know, right below him. The wind's rushing in my face. I can wait here for the wind to switch on me or I can freaking thread that needle right now and heart shoot him. And dude, like I just, I sat there for about three minutes. I'm like, uh-uh, I'm freaking not waiting. I can make the shot. I make the shot in my sleep all day long. And I freaking threaded the needle, and he was, I heart shot him in his bed, and he was down within 200. I saw him run across the base and go up. All the other deer pour up and over out the other side. He, like, was full alert looking back in my direction. I was down uh, looking through some sagebrush with my binoculars, and I could just see his chest light up. I mean, just pumping out red down his front legs and out his brisket like just pouring and he started to just you know wobble a little bit but he took a couple steps forward up the hill so i raced around the back side of the bowl anticipating that he may come up where those other deer the other bucks had gone and that i would get another shot at him as he tried to crest over but he didn't even make it he 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 fell over right there so i was I didn't get to see him fall. I stood up above and looked over the basin and I saw the other deer where the other bucks had gone. I'm like, okay, he was bleeding really freaking hard and heavy. There's his buddies. I saw the does run out the bottom and no buck. And so I sat there for probably about 30 minutes, just looking everything over. And you have those critical moments where you could just either sit there and watch or try and get in position for another shot. If I would have just sat there and watched from across the way, I would have seen him fall. But I wanted to do everything I could to make sure I got another arrow in him if I needed to. And he wasn't there. So that's when I just sat and observed for about 30 minutes. Saw nothing moving, saw all the other deer blow out. So that's when I decided to go uh, look for where he was at, where he was last standing. And the blood trail was super, super heavy, but I had my my eyes pretty focused. I had an arrow knocked. Eyes were pretty focused on the ground. And we went maybe 100 feet. And there he was. I, like, literally started bawling like a little kid almost. It was crazy. I was so full of emotions. But um, the wind, man, it switched and, and it killed him within 20 minutes. He was, like, less than 20 minutes. I mean, he was dead. It, from the moment that the wind switched and I was sitting behind my scope to, like, racing around the edge of the basin 700 yards away, coming up from behind over the top of him, and shooting him was probably less than 20 minutes. And that stuff's cool. Like, that's the stuff that gets me totally fired up because you know there's that voice like you're talking about inside that pretty much screams at you. It says, now's your chance. Go and get it done or, like, be paralyzed and not do anything about it and nothing's going to happen. But, like, go now. Super loud. That's really cool. It's neat to know that that happens to you too. Yeah, um, what a great play-by-play because I—that was one of the questions I had for you. Like, as those bucks are in their bed, a lot of times in that sagebrush, there just isn't a shot when they're laying down, or they get tucked in a bed that's so dug out that there isn't a good shot. But so to hear, like, you piece together where his body's at in that hole in the sage, and knowing that's in the right point, and then aiming for that point, putting it right through him is really cool. It's also really cool to hear 
like a uh, you can't shut off a predator, right? So you put a good arrow, you know you hit that buck good, but you can't turn it off. Like that's the way our mind works is that now you're circling around that ridge. You're just trying to ensure yourself you're going to get that buck and and um you know, like I sh- I'm sure you've seen situations where you think it's a perfect arrow or you think your buddy's arrow is perfect and those deer go a long ways. So like you couldn't turn it off. You had to duck around that ridge again and make sure you were set up in case you got another shot. But I loved hearing about that spot in the brush because I, I got faced with that this year. Sometimes it's tough to tell from the opposing hillside when you're glassing a buck how dug in he is or what it's going to look like when you get there. And, and I'm sure you've made that mistake like I have before of not taking good enough landscaping or not taking a picture on your phone and then getting over there and it looks totally different and you can't figure out where the buck is. But in this case, I had the buck pinned to a location and he bedded. He was by himself. It was right at the beginning stages of the rut. And he had like these giant G2s on him that stretched the tape over 20 inches, real nice, dark, heavy horns, a buck I really wanted to kill. And he bedded there. And so I was able to come over the ridge and I was able to pick up his antler tines and see the top of his rack. And he was close when I came over. He was 27 yards away. But I had a right to left. I need to get, I need to back up from you a little bit. Oh dude, I did. Yeah. But that's where he was like over top the ridge. That's the first point that he exposed himself. And I couldn't come over farther to the left or I wouldn't have a shot and couldn't see him farther to the right. I could have gone higher and maybe got a better angle on him, but my wind wasn't good for there where I came over. My winds pretty much like I got a crosswind, uh, a right to left. And I can see the tips of his tines, and I thought about trying to shoot him in his bed, but then I'm paying attention to which way his antlers are configured and which way he's looking. And he's looking either to my left or he's looking up at me the whole time. And so I never had a time where I could draw and try to come up and try to get a look at him in his bed so I could just see the tips of his antlers. And I waited there 45 minutes, 50 minutes, and my wind held really steady, but then it started getting gusty. And the wind direction was still the same, but it started blowing like that 20-mile-an-hour gusts and 25-mile-an-hour gusts. And and finally, it swirled around, and he caught my wind and, and got out of there. So I was wondering how you get shots on those deer in their beds um, when they get tucked in like that. And I feel like some situations, you, you just can't even tell until you get there. So much of this hunting is done like adapting on the fly. Like you did on that buck, your wind switched around, and you seized that moment. Now, you were only able to seize that moment because you had been watching that buck. You put yourself in that place. You were close enough. Then you felt that wind, realized it, adapted your tactics, and then got in there and killed that buck. Like I think that adapting on the fly or adapting to the conditions, sometimes I can lay the best laid plans for a stock, but then I get over there and I find that maybe that isn't the right course of action and I have to adapt. Or the toughest thing yet is having to back out on a stock, getting there, realizing the wind is wrong or it's changed or conditions aren't right and backing totally out and trying to get back where you can see that deer. How much of that adapting on the fly do you do, trusting your instincts on those situations? You know, I think, Brian, I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we do a lot of planning in our minds. But as soon as our boots leave the truck, the only thing that we can tell ourselves is that we're going to kill a buck. I'm going to kill a deer. 
I don't know how it's going to happen. I'm going to kill a deer. You look at it, you have all these scenarios going through your head. You're watching through the scope. You're looking at the wind. You're analyzing everything, and everything's happening on the fly so fast, so quickly. It's kind of interesting because nothing ever turns out how you think it will. Preconceived notions fly out the window. Um, plans fly out the window. Thought processes fly out the window. Um, anything that has to do with you trying to be the architect of how it's going to go down generally flies out the window. And so much of what we do happens on the fly. If you're like a, an engineer type hunter, like I think hunting's going to probably be the most challenging thing in the world for you because it's never going to go down how you want it to. It, it, it goes down how I want it to, meaning like, like you said, we'll adapt to the situation to make it, to execute in that moment, to make it, you know, end up with the result we wanted. But very rarely does it happen exactly how I want it. Like even if I see a buck bedded and I know I'm going to come up over the top of him, generally speaking, the angle's not exactly how I thought it was going to be. Um, I'll have to adjust in some way. Like I'll have to back out go down the ridge a little bit further glass again, back out, go down the ridge a little bit further glass again, just to try and get the right angle. Like if I come up over the top of a buck and he's at 40 yards and there's not the right shot or the right angle, you know, absolutely a hundred percent. I'm backing out of range. I'm not waiting there to like wait for him to stand up. I'm not waiting for, for him to control that situation in that moment. I'm backing out and coming in at an angle that I can possibly see a hole. So that way I can sneak an arrow in. Even if Buck is standing, he can drop to charge his legs and mess your arrow placement up. Like there's no better place to shoot a buck than when he's laying down. That's his weakest point. And so if I can back out and, you know, come back in on another angle, I'm going to do that every single time if I can, because then we're doing everything that we can to control the set of circumstances um, that are set before us. We have the ability to control that, that set of uh, conditions because um, you know, the more, the longer we sit there and the more we wait, I mean, I, I just, I, 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 I have a hard time doing that because it doesn't, it hasn't for me, it hasn't paid off consistently enough. It's, it's ended more with that, you know, I sat there on him for four hours and freaking the wind switched. He got up and ran. Well, it's like, yeah, eventuality will dictate no matter what you hope of it to will dictate that, you know, the percentages are are going to go against you on that one more times than not. And I've heard a ton of people like successfully stock sit on deer and wait till they get up and place a perfect shot on them. I've heard that a million times. I just personally prefer to, um, control the situation a little bit more. So for me, uh, I like pressing the envelope, pushing the issue and, and, you know, squeezing an arrow and, um, on, on my time versus, you know, waiting for conditions to deteriorate or, or maybe not. And you get your shot, but I just, I haven't, unfortunately have not had the best of luck doing it that way. God, um, yeah, it's so interesting to hear it, but there's also like a set of, like you have to have confidence in your skills. Like a, a lot of times, 
you know, early in my career, I'd get frozen with fear that I finally got in bow range. Like we're out there and we're hunting these deer and it's with this goal that I just need to get in bow range. But bow range is, is only a part of the equation. Then getting the shot is a whole nother part of the equation, you know? And so I, I love that aggressive nature at which you have the confidence in your skills to be able to get into bow range, not see your angle, but have the confidence to be able to back out quietly and then come around at a different angle and just know that you can come back up over the rise and know that you're going to catch that deer before he catches you or knowing that you're not going to make enough noise where he can pick you out or knowing that you're not going to give away your silhouette or give away movement like there's a lot of confidence in your skills that you have to have there and I you know I may be the other side of the coin a little bit I I sit and wait on a lot of these deer like um if, if I can find a shot or if I can shoot him right then and there I will but see I tend to play the patience and I'm never a rock thrower guy or I never force a situation I want to keep that element of surprise and, and the longer I can keep that element of surprise eventually something comes together for me so a lot of times I'll wait and be more patient but I, I love what you stated just about like having that confidence in your skills and then you said, like, you want to be able to control the scenario or control the situation, control when you get the shot, control more of the variables and not give them the chance to win you. And, and I can be honest, I've killed a lot of deer waiting for him to get off, get up. But I've also been winded by a lot of deer waiting for him to get up. And, you know, every stock in, in every situation is going to be different. Um, I, I love what you said, how. Like you can make the best plans and it never turns out exactly like you think. Like adapting on the fly is one of our biggest assets. Like being able to adapt to the conditions you're seeing. Come over the ridge and it's not quite right. Or I, I love to be able to see the deer. So I love to be able to come over and check where he's at, make sure he's in that spot. Or come over the top and I see where he's at, but I see the angle I can shoot him is 15 yards over and back and over and get into that spot. Like I, I love that on the fly thinking and, and you're right. You're always going to have to adapt. You can think of this spot, how you're going to come over and shoot that deer. And it very rarely happens like that. You're going to get over there and maybe you get held up by another deer you see, or that deer gets up out of his bed and now he's on his feet. And now you have to adapt to that situation or he changes beds or one of the other mule deer changes beds. And now you have to adapt your approach, but it seems like it's all just thinking on our feet, adapting on the fly. Like you make a good game plan. You try to get the variables in your favor, but then you have to adapt to the conditions which you see once you get over there. Like, uh, uh, and, and let those hunting instincts take over again and dictate where you're going to move and how you're going to do it. And, and a lot of those things, you know, like, uh, using that topography. I love to hide myself over the topography. I love to uh, creep down in the shadows. I love to stay in the shadows and not the bright sunshine. I, you know, there's so many little tricks there that go along with it. But, but again, it comes down to that, that hunting instinct and making those decisions. But there is nothing more fun or more engaging uh, then when I'm immersed in a stock like that, like that's what all the work is for finding these deer, that adrenaline rush I get to give myself a chance to be able to harvest that deer. And really I'm giving myself a chance to try to make a hundred right decisions and have it go my way. 
but I, I love that chess match with them. Like that's the, that's the funnest part to me. And win, lose or draw, I always come back and it's like, man, that was worth the price of, of admission. Like that was fun. That was thrilling. That lit a fire underneath me, like making those plays and those decisions and trying to harvest that buck. Like, like that to me, that's the funnest part of the whole game. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. It's, it's a huge rush. I, so I'm I'm a little bit boring. I'm you know, you call it whatever you will. I've never been the type that um, I don't drink. I haven't drank since I was probably like 23. Um, so a lot of people, you know, hey, let's get a beer, and I'm like, oh, I, I don't. I'll grab an iced tea, and they're like, what? You know, it's kind of a funny thing. Uh, it's it's kind of a, a passing joke anyhow anymore with me and my friends. They're like, oh, he ain't gonna drink nothing. I don't watch sports, so I don't go to games or anything like that. So I'm kind of like this, you know, a little bit of a socially outcast boring kind of fellow but the the point i'm getting at is that i don't know what it's like to take you know drugs or do drugs or get wasted and pass out or you know have that euphoric kind of high i I have no idea what but if i were to quantify it if i were to say that i knew what it was like I, i would sit there and say that you know bow hunting and and releasing a good arrow on a on a big mature buck has got to be one of the most euphoric highs ever it's it's a crazy level of self-accomplishment you know commitment dedication all that but like the way that you feel when you release that arrow is it's like something i don't even know if i know how to put into words it's a radical feeling Man, I, th- I think it's in our DNA, too. Like, we survived as humans the last 200,000 years by hunting and, and and by harvesting meat for our tribe. Can you imagine how exciting it must have been back then when you were starving to death and you have this, this family or this tribe and you're able to release a perfect arrow and to bring home and procure this this meat that's that, that's going to uh, be life-sustaining for you and your family. And I, I think that somewhere that's built inside our DNA. And I'm the same way as I've never bungee jumped. I've never jumped out of a plane. I've never, you know, I, I'm not a thrill seeker in that way. But the thrill I get out of chasing these mature animals and out of releasing an arrow, that euphoric uh, uh, feeling that you describe, like just now, like – um. And, and it is. It's so tough to, to to put into words or to try to describe. But it it, it um it makes my heart almost want to beat out of my chest. Like the thrill, the excitement, the adrenaline rush, and, and then the the other feelings that come along with it. With you know working so hard at a goal, working at something so challenging, and, and being able like it almost feels like uh, uh like being able to accomplish the impossible. Like it just feels like it's such this huge looming uh, goal, or it's so difficult. And then when it all comes together, it just almost feels like it's meant to be. And when you make those right decisions that lead up to that moment, and, and then execution is such a huge part of that of that feeling for me. If I could harvest a great big deer but have bad execution and make a bad shot, like I'm not going to feel real good about that situation. Like the situation that I feel good about is to get in and to keep my cool, to keep my calm, keep my composure, to to be able to draw back and and and, and use all these skills that I built for the last year, the last 20 years for that matter of shooting my bow and to be able to put that pin where I want it and execute that arrow and make a clean, quick, 
kill on a trophy animal, like, that's the feeling, man. I mean, it just doesn't get any better for guys like me and you than that feeling. And it is tough to describe, but, man, it's like no other feeling out there. And I I really think it goes somewhere to, you know, our our um, our roots to, to being a human. I think that feeling is in our DNA. I think there's a reason why we feel that way when we harvest an animal. And I, I think it's tied back to our ancestors and tied back to – to hunting and, and our survival as, as mankind. I really do. Uh, I, yeah, I think that's about as good as anybody can put it. I really do think it's tied deeply, uh, much more than what we might like to think it is. I think it's definitely part of, uh, a provider's core DNA for sure. It, it, there's something very primitive about it that, um, goes far beyond bow hunting or i mean why does why do the mountains call us why do they call us why why do we feel the need to suffer yes it's exactly right i i don't you know i mean there's very 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 rarely do we take our boots off of our feet and let the air just kind of like dry out our socks and like lay there in the sun and just kind of like bask in the moment. I mean, at least I don't, you know, I'm freaking working my rear end off and, you know, it's a pretty much a 24 seven suffer fest for me when I'm up there. Like I don't stop and don't quit and I go hard and, you know, until I perform and achieve the task I went up there to achieve. And so there's not really much that many people could say to me that would change my mind on the fact that it's, you know, it's a, it is a, it's like a supper fest. It, it's significantly uncomfortable a lot of the time. And, and I'm seeking out moments of joy, you know, when you crest the ridge or, you know, when you do feel the straps in your pack and it's heavier in hell and you want to quit and you get up to the top and you're like, wow, that's a rad Vista. You know, that's a, an amazing mountain. We just climbed up and you're looking down and you smell the Alpine air and the hike is chirping. I mean, those are, those are, you know, the cherries on top. That's like the chocolate syrup. It, it's like the amazing part about being outdoors. I can't tell you why uh, necessarily I enjoy embracing so much suck. Um, but the thing is, is I feel like I'm almost defined by it. Like, I love that. I love that for that. And without it, I wouldn't be. So, I mean, I think so much of it is a core part of just who we are. I, that I can't explain it. You ever, you ever like, I know, I know this because you're such a freaking wild athlete and you're such a crazy runner and you do these like just nuts things that like most of us would look at with like huge saucer eyes. I do. I go no freaking way I'm doing that. And you do it. And, and I know that you've taken your body to the brink. And once your body's healed up or not even once it's healed up, like, a day or two later, you're like wishing you were right back in that same spot again. <laughs> Total suck fest. Like, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, I just smiling ear to ear as you're talking and talking about the grind and embracing it and the work that goes into it. It's what I love about it too. Um, why, why is that? You suffer so hard. And like you say, you can be a day or two out of it and your legs are still so blown up and so sore. And that's all you can think about is being back in that spot. Like, like that is weird. It's weird that we like it that much or we like suffering that much, but yeah, the grind and the suffer in, in the being able to endure, 
uh, that's a major part of being successful. If if not the core part of being successful is like you have to work at it, be willing to grind, be willing to endure tough weather, tough times, tough conditions. Like, um, man, that is at the core of it. And once you fall in love with that that hard work or that effort, and like you say, you know what you do in the mountains or what you do in the desert, you put an average guy with you, he's not having any fun. You know, like he's trying to find a way to quit. He's trying to find a way to get out of that hunt. But for some reason, you know, it it gets in some of our DNA where we like it and we like the grind. And the harder we work and the more we put into it, like the better that hunt is. And really, the tougher the hunt is, the more it means to me and the more I think about that hunt in the end. The tougher it was, the more I had to endure, whether I was successful or not, at the end of the season or even seasons down the road, like that's the hunt I'll remember, you know, it's like, and it's not fun all the time. The grind is not fun all the time. Like sometimes it hurts, it suffers. You don't feel like walking anymore. Don't feel like getting up early, but you do and you make yourself do it. And and this like bigger goal or bigger purpose like drives us, you know, it's just, oh man, it's just wild. So uh, one of the things I did want to get into with you is one of the challenges that we face, like, um, like we love this so much, this bow hunting so much, but you know, hunting has gained popularity over the years. And I, I hear guys talk about hunting pressure and they get real negative about hunting pressure. And I know, you know, you're hunting the same public land that I am or different places, but we're all hunting this public land. It's, it seems like I'm able to find my own experience out there. Like, like what would be some of your tricks for getting away from the pressure or some of your mindset or, cause I know you run into guys out there like I do, but like, how do you overcome that? Or how do you find your own experience out there, you know, with so many guys enjoying what we love to do? It's a mix nowadays. I mean, like you were talking about earlier, um, you know, we own our own businesses and, and we kind of do our own thing. And, you know, as a result of that, we have the ability to kind of dictate how we see things, how we perceive things, how we want them to be, um, kind of what shape that takes. And to be honest, you know, if I, if I did uh, work a nine to five, or if I did have a regular job, I think that I've kind of, worked myself into a position now where I can pick and choose things a little bit more. That doesn't mean that, you know, I have a ton of money to throw around because I I don't, but I'm smarter. I don't, uh, if I take time, I'm going to put my time towards spending a month in a place where I know I can yield a big deer and be alone. Likewise, if I know that I can go on a hunt where um, I can't be alone, but there's private property, you bet I'm going to be either asking for permission or paying trespass fees to get access to landlocked BLM or things like that. Like I'm just kind of smarter about the way I go about it now. Um, And I hold things so tight to my chest, meaning, you know, you and I both get a million freaking questions from people. Hey, so what state were you in or what unit were you in? And most people are innocently asking. And for me, I'm like, I will never disclose what state or unit I'm in because all the stuff is predominantly over the counter. A lot of it is. So that means anybody can go do it. I'm totally all for answering the questions of 
you know, how do you stock in, what kind of noise can you make, blah, 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 wind, thermals, you name it, feed, cover, all kinds of stuff like that's super helpful. But I draw the line on the stuff that I can do every year that gains popularity. That's just going to put me in a situation where I'm not enjoying the hunt so much because of the, what I've done to help impact in a, in a, in a, in an experiential way, in a fashion that wouldn't prevent it from anybody from enjoying it because with the amount of profound amount of activity, nobody's going to kill a deer. Um, so I, I try and leave that a little bit more mysterious for people to do and draw their own conclusions and do their own research. And, and if they end up there and they recognize me, I'm like, high five, dude, right on freaking, you know, and we'll talk, but you're already there and you made the commitment of, you know, going out of state, buying the tag, doing your thing and, and putting yourself in a position to be there. But by no means, even if it's an innocent question, am I going to contribute towards somewhere being, you know, more popular? But nowadays, um, I have a tendency to just simply, you know, even if I know there's really good animals in a place where there's going to be a lot of people, um, I'll switch up my tactics. I'll, I'll either hunt it during the week or I'll um, go when most people won't go where most people, most of it's going where most people won't go. That's the, the honest truth of it. I'll go where most people won't go. And I'm not a, you know, I'm not a fast guy. I'm freaking six foot three and just shy of 260 pounds. Like I'm a big dude. And so getting up big mountains for me is a much slower process than it would be for you. But speed doesn't kill a buck. So for me, it's not all about like going somewhere as fast as I can and covering as much ground as I can, as fast as I can. It's about being patient and methodical and going through my processes and working through the steps that I know gets deer killed and just continuing to repeat that in a fashion that I know is going to provide results. Um, so in that same vein, like, let's say I know I have an eight mile hike to get into a place I want to hunt. I just know that I'm going to have to, no ands, ifs, or buts, I'm going to have to be boots on the ground walking by like 2.45 in the morning to where I can get to my vantage point and chill out and know that I'm in the right spot when the light hits at perfect time and knowing that most big bucks kind of have a tendency to put themselves to bed still right in that gray time, right you know, within the first 15 to 20 minutes, they're going to try and dive into some nasty stuff where you can't see them, especially in the early season. Um, so I just give myself the time to get into these places, and I like to go where nobody else is willing to go. And, you know, the funny part is is sometimes that's not necessarily distance. I mean, I always like to pe keep people guessing, too. As much as I like to give information, I always like to keep people guessing. Like, some of the biggest deer that I've ever killed were – literally no joke a quarter mile from a road so it's not necessarily always about how far you can go it's how are the deer using the country and how good at you are are you, or how good are you at paying attention to the deer that are using the country in a certain way that gives you an upper edge or an advantage on whatever everybody else is doing so I kind of think it's a conjunction of things. And lately in certain areas, I've definitely been asking for more permission uh, to access landlocked chunks of land that I want to hunt or even private land. Like I just did a, a late season hunt 
um, took me a really long time to draw the tag and, you know, it was all landowner permission to hunt that. So it really kind of is a mixture of everything, but being much wiser and smarter and more cognizant about going into a hunt versus just showing up and hoping something happens and being pissed off when I don't have the results that I want and complaining about public land being too overcrowded. It's kind of like, we're all dealing with the same circumstances. It is tougher, but you know, it's all in the same vein. It's all in the heart of conservation. It's all in the heart of all of us pursuing a passion that we really, really love. If we give each other room and we have respect, there's plenty of room. Like if you see somebody go the other direction, there's just a, just as good a chance of there being a big buck in another direction. You're still hunting the same area. Like give people their breath kind of, you know, I'm not the social type. If I see somebody on a ridge, I'm not going to walk up to you and start talking to you. I'm literally going to see you and go, okay, I'm going the other way. And, um, and I think that that, you know, goes a long way, Brian. Yeah. I, I love listening to you talk about hunting mule deer. Um, yeah, you made so many great points there. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, like you, I've had to hold information a little closer to my chest. There's, um, there's, there's a lot, there's some guys out there that are more looking to where I'm hunting or where you're hunting than looking to discover their own spot. And so I've had to hold my information a little bit closer to my exact spots. And, and the reason is too, is I've got years committed into learning these spots, or even if I'm going to a new spot, I put so much time and energy and I, I've bought in the tag, the out of state tag. I've driven down there. I've missed work. You know, it, it's thousands and thousands of dollars and hours of my time to develop this spot. So yeah, I don't just give that information away. And, and really I believe just like you stated, it's getting crafty. It's being smarter. It's, um, you know, it, it's, I think there's good spots to hunt deer all over throughout the West, in every state, in, in a bunch of different units. You know, there's so many great places to go hunt deer. And I, anymore, the more spots I hunt, it's more about the way you hunt a place than it is the place you're hunting. You know, like you said, it's it's about picking out those deer. It's about being really intelligent the way you are hunting that place. Like I hunt a lot of places of, of how can I see it? How can I see it the best? It's thinking of the best hunting plan for that location. You know, and sometimes that's glassing from 10 miles away. And sometimes that's hiking 10 miles in to hike to glass one drainage, you know, and it differs like a, a lot of times that, that, uh, that effort, um, or, or that extra effort of going in, like you are leaving at two 30 in the morning. There's a lot of guys that are not willing to leave at two 30 in the morning to get to that good vantage point. That's putting more effort in than the average guy. Or like you said, sometimes you have eight miles to hike into a place. I love separating myself by distance, but it isn't always distance or miles. Sometimes it can just be large canyons. It can be uh, mountains that you go over. And, and I've also found that I look for spots that you can't glass from a road. Like, uh, uh, it seems like everybody nowadays knows how to throw a pair of binos or a scope out a window. So I'm looking for the spots that I can't see from a roadway or that I can't see from these easier vantage points. And I'm hiking to those tougher locations. And I just still think that there's so much quality hunting to be had out West just by being crafty and finding these spots and, and, um, you know, like wildernesses, and I love diving deep into a wilderness, but every hardcore backpack guy knows to look in the wilderness and knows to hike in. So now, you know, there's this this whole group of guys that are looking at the same wilderness where that used to be my niche for a lot of years was disappearing in the middle of there and finding good hunting. 
And now I'm finding like different little wilderness spots, like maybe BLM or state or something like that, that barely kisses the road and then opens up into 20 or 30 square miles. And there may be roads on a map, but the roads cross private land to get to that. So then pretty soon there's no roads that you can drive to access in there and you have to hike a long ways from a road. So it kind of creates like a wilderness area. But it's almost like a secret wilderness area because it's not marked on a map for everybody to see. You have to dive into it a little bit more. You have to do the research and figure it out. And then you just find over time where deer prefer and looking at bucky country. And that's something that's developed over years of looking on Google Earth and Onyx and then hiking into that location, either finding deer or not finding deer. I know for my this backpack spot that I have in Montana – I went to 10 different mountain ranges trying to find a spot to hunt high country deer and struck out in 10 different places over four or five different summers of trying to find a high country deer spot before I finally ran into the spot that held the high country deer until I killed, you know, 180 incher out of my home state, out of the mountains, out of an early season hunt. Like that's what it takes. You have to be willing to go strike out. You have to be willing to put the time into our craft and the time into locating these other areas. You have to put your time looking at at maps and looking at Google Earth and theorizing and, and then also like developing a hunting place like you were talking about a lot of the places you hunt are over the counter well you don't just show up on the first time you hunt that place and have it all dialed and kill a giant buck now sometimes it happens that way but the majority of time you have to you have to pay your dues you have to spend multiple trips over there like uh, uh, to kill my my buck in Montana this year, I mean, I had five different backpacking trips out there, weekend warrior, five different trips, uh, three to four day trips to be able to harvest that buck. Like that's a lot of time and energy, and that's five trips across the state, seven hours of driving there, seven hours of driving back, you know, spending all that time in that country backpacking around. Like it just takes time to develop these spots, but they're out there for everybody. The key is to not go to where good hunters go. The key is to get good at the skill set to be able to develop your own spots because they exist all over through the West. Um, I, I didn't mean to go on a on a large tangent there, but I really think those are the keys, though the ones that you mentioned, and and, and then just um, you, you know these different tactics that are outside the norm. Like there's still a way for us average blue collar guys to find. Uh, uh, beyond average hunting to find these next level critters, just like you've been doing year after year. It's out there for all of us. Oh, it totally is. There's no doubt about it. There's, there's plenty of it. It, that, I think that's the, I think that's part of the, I wouldn't call it a problem, but I would call it the plight of the average guy that isn't, what to do in order to create his own luck and you know that is the first thing to that is often looked at as the go-to is to try and you know find somebody's spot um and while that can you know produce some short-term results you're really kind of i think cutting yourself short at the legs and not really understanding why the deer are there so you'll really never understand you'll always be trying to find people's spots versus finding animals for yourself once you become bucky and once you understand like what that is it doesn't really matter what it is whether it's an elk whether it's a deer whether it's goats you know sheep but antelope it's like once you kind of develop your instincts you really won't 
care about where somebody else is hunting. Like, I don't really care so much about where somebody else is hunting anymore. It, it used to be where I'm like, Ooh, wow, that's really rad genetics. I want to know where that is. And now I don't really care so much. Um, you know, like, let's say for example, if you wanted to come hunt with me somewhere, I respect you and your skill sets and know that you don't need me. So I'd be more apt to say, Hey, come on, let's go to a hunt. Um, because I don't need your spot and you don't need my spot. We're going to go do our thing and be plenty successful. Somebody that doesn't already do that, I'm probably not going to say anything at all. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut and we can keep it very general. Um, but if you develop those instincts and those skill sets, I think that it's really incredible what happens. Like you'll blossom uh, as a hunter, as an outdoorsman, you know, with your woods your woodsmanship I think will blossom. Like if you start to learn more about why they're there versus, you know, going somewhere just because, you know, there's deer there. I mean, what are they eating? What's their predominant forage? And then you'll start looking at, you know, trails and use and, and, and I don't mean trailheads, but you'll start looking for sign and like terrain and certain things that they like. And you'll just end up finding spots that, you know, by your instinct will will let you know that there's going to be animals there. And I think that's so much more rewarding. Um, so I, I kind of, you know, I believe that if people rely more heavily upon developing their instinct and their skill sets, uh, people would be much more fanned out. Um, there would be, you know, a bigger spread on where all the people are and uh, many more people having a much more enjoyable experience. Yeah, spot on. I mean, the best the best spots out there are not somebody else's spot. They're the spot that haven't hasn't been discovered. I mean, I walked into an area this year that um you know, like anymore, there isn't too many sheds that are left around to go white or to that go back to the earth. Like if hunters come across sheds, they pick them up. I got into this mule deer area where I must have found a dozen sheds in there, and I found some big, heavy, older deer, and they were just laying everywhere out there. And it, it, it was a weird spot where it's not, you know, it, it was a long ways back in there, but it almost wasn't the distance that separated other hunters. What it was is just the vastness and and how many canyons you had to cross and the access you had to use. Again, another one of these wilderness spots that isn't a true wilderness that I just developed, but you start getting in there. And like you say, you start reading the signs, you start reading the trails and where you're seeing the deer at. And then you're seeing all these old sheds and it feels like I'm in a spot that nobody hunts. Nobody has discovered this spot. They haven't been in here in the last 10, 20 years hunting. Like, like this is, this is a, this is a spot I want to develop more. And, and as you get in there, then you start seeing those older age class deer. All of a sudden you're not seeing the standard two, three, four year old deer. You see those two, but you start seeing those five, six, seven, eight year old deer, the heavy ones, the extras, you know, these deer that just haven't been hunted, you know, and, and, and that's what's out there for us to discover across the West. The best spot is not somebody's spot. It's a spot that hasn't been discovered yet. And I, I think they're out there and I think they're, 
there's more of them than than even guys like me and you realize. You know, there's just a lot of good spots to go hunt deer and elk. Like the West just holds good game numbers. You know, so yeah, I th- I think you're spot on on that, Marlon. And you've done a good job at developing your skills. I love how you described it as cutting off your own legs, like to go to somebody else's spot, because you're not developing your own skills and you're not thinking for yourself. And you're not building that skill set to be able to find another good spot. You're just going to a spot. And uh, I, I think you're you're spot on with everything you said there about avoiding the pressure. And, like, even this year I heard, you know, like COVID pressure was pretty heavy in places as a lot of people had extra time. Man, I was still able to find my own experience everywhere I went. And that doesn't mean that I don't ever run into people. And just like you stated, like you give people their space. And if I see people, I am going the opposite direction, just like you. If I see any humans, I want to get the heck out of there. Even if there's a bunch of deer in there, like I just I just want to go find my own spot. I know it exists out there. And so if I see people, I'm going the other way. If I see a, a vehicle's parked, I'm looking for another trailhead or I'm looking to go further. I'm just looking for a way to separate myself because that – that solo experience and not seeing boot tracks and being in a place that nobody hunts, that's a pretty special experience, and I love that feeling. I I love getting into action and seeing animals and glassing up animals in their natural habitat and feel like I've really got a spot of gold, man. That That is so much fun. I, I just really enjoy that. I'll do. I couldn't agree with you more, Brian. Like, really, I, I really couldn't. And, and, and there's reasons for it, right? Um, so – I think that, and, and take it for what it's worth, but I, I really believe that there's a ton of spots out there that we haven't found yet. And, and there's a really good reason for that. When, when, you know, when we hone in on an area that, that is holding during our hunt and we have a couple of years in it, two, three years going forward, and it starts to be more and more, and we start harvesting out of there and, and they become like these consistent little honey holes. Uh, guys like us have a tendency not to do much exploring. And and that's almost a, a bad thing because, you know, the first key to fishing is you don't leave fish to find fish. You don't leave elk to find elk. You don't leave deer to find deer. So when we find deer, we have a tendency to day and hunt them especially if we know that the genetic potential is there to possibly provide us with what we're looking for so you know to be quite honest with you i feel like a lot of guys that have a ton of talent um or you know maybe crap maybe i don't have that much talent and you know i i i need to like start broadening my horizons and getting out of these ruts that i've created for myself and start looking for more spots because just like you said, that spot that you found all the chalks in with big mass and different age class. I mean, that's like something that I really, nowadays, I don't take those for granted. That's the excitement. That's the true thrill. There's, I love pulling up to an area and hiking in on trodden ground, almost like a ritual experience that you just, you've seen all bucks hang out on that hill. They love, and this is how they use this ridge and da 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 da. And you know how they use the country. But the thrill is almost childlike, like a Christmas type of anticipation when you roll into a new area and prove your theory right and see animals holding in an area that, you know, you were hoping 
held because you know how many areas don't hold. And so when one pulls through, you're like, oh, my, there's a childlike revelation that happens, and it's so magical. And I think the older we get, the less and less we have of those because, you know, we found areas that prove themselves, and we have a tendency not to leave the deer to find deer if they're there, and they generally are um, finding those little treasures seem to be less and less frequent, especially for me as I get older. I kind of, you know, like go not not the same places, but I have like a almost like a a mental inventory of places I like to go, and as a result, I end up a having not the time, um, or b I just like hunting the areas out of habit, and as a result, may not find these little gems that you know i i would that for me started it all off to begin with it's part of the reason why i love hunting so much is finding these amazing places yeah you're spot on we all have to be somewhere and you can only be one spot at a time and you have to give that your energy and focus so that you're right and it uh the more you develop these hunting spots and and the more you go there you're not you're not going to new locations you're not looking for those new locations so yeah i mean they're they're out there for the taking so yeah i think it's i think it's important to develop locations and to hunt locations multiple years to gain information and also to develop it further hike into different drainages different vantage points in further in different places but you know, I think you're right when you talk about the magic of finding a new spot. And I think we have to dedicate, you know, some of our season to finding these new locations or to hunting new areas because it is it is uh, magical or almost um, like a, a childlike to be able – like we're explorers by nature. Humans love to explore, and I just love to go to new places and see new vantage points and look over – new country and then like you say when you find deer or bucks in that new location that you've theorized and thought about and put all this time and effort man the payoff is huge you know it feels like you've really found something and two you don't know where you're going to find deer or where they're going to show up at um you know, you know you have likely spots but to be able to look at all that country with new eyes it is a pretty cool experience. So yeah, I do think it's a mix and match of that, uh, continuing to develop new spots while still hunting, you know, spots that we know that we have developed, that we have put the time in in the past. So, uh, yeah, man, I think you're spot on. You got a, you got a, um, so you still got a, a hunt left for the new year. I know I'll, I'll be going on a hunt for the new year. So uh, you're probably spending time with family and getting ramped up for the last hunt of the year or one of them. <laughs> how, how do you know me so well how do you know me so well that you know i'm paying my dues right now so that way i can go leave for another couple two three weeks <laughs> well i just figured it's um, the exact situation i'm in so <laughs> i figured you were close yeah. to you hunt mule deer in so many great places marlon um man oh man you had a bunch of great hunts this year so uh i it was a wild guess but um i'm glad i got it right so uh you still got one hunt left huh one, possibly two. Nice, possibly right two. on. I'm, I'm looking. I'm looking into. Um, I am. I don't know if I'm gonna. So the thing is, is it's just a lot of money, and I've always kind of shied away from. I know you got to pay to play to an extent, but uh, Old Mexico is a place I've always wanted to go, but I've always kind of been like, eh, I don't know if I want to spend fifteen grand on a deer. <laughs> and, and I just. 
I just, but I've always wanted to go. And I see people pulling these 230 inch, 250 inch giants out of there. And, you know, that, that just kind of lures me in a little bit. I don't know if I, the reality is I probably won't, but it's a possibility. And then there's other opportunities that I'm looking at now, um, that have interest to me. You know, there's, there's reservation hunts, there's, uh, other states that have hunts that go on uh later into the year so i'm actually looking at a couple different things one for sure possibly two i don't dare say three because then everybody will be mad at me but um in my family my son will have a connection <laughs> fit <laughs> everybody at my my business will be like are you serious you're going again <laughs> so um yeah from uh the end of august through january is a is a different world for us, isn't it? Oh, it is. It's, uh, it is so fun, and I I do move the goal line quite a bit. But uh, glad that I got a supportive family. But there's just so much opportunity out there, you know. Here I am, 40 years old, and I'm just still learning. And and there's still states that I haven't been to, or locations I haven't been, or opportunities that I haven't flushed out. Uh, so yeah, I I mean that's the excitement of life is being able to live it. And that's, again, that's my vehicle to experience things and to be able to travel and go to these different places. It's just something I, I truly love with every fiber of my being. And I, I love the whole process from like right now, uh, uh, studying up and trying to figure out how I'm going to hunt it to scouting it to being down there on the hunt. Uh, the, the preparation that goes into it, I just love the whole process. And, um, you know, we're in this information day and age, and there's a lot of information out of there out there and a a lot of places to go so i'm with you on that mexico thing man uh that uh, sonoran desert mule deer that they kill down there in mexico got some of those dark heavy black horns you know and and for me it'd just be like finding the right the right situation it sounds like a lot of that country is tough to glass or is too thick or is thick and you know a lot of it they do a lot of driving around from high racks and you know, that's not quite my deal, but if I could find the right hunt that catered to the way I like to hunt and I like to glass and I could go experience the, the wild places down there that they have to offer, like, um, yeah, I, I'd definitely be looking into that option as well if I could find it to, like, kind of suit my, my preferences. Um, but, but they do, man, the genetics and the look of some of those deer, I just can't help but gawk over them. They are just so impressive looking uh some of the genetics they get down there is just crazy. So, yeah, being a, a the mule deer junkie that you are, it doesn't surprise me that you're looking down there. You know, maybe that's uh, something one day we can look at together because, um, like, that, that desert stuff, I mean, that's kind of like, I don't know, I, I feel like it's kind of my wheelhouse. Desert, desert animals, desert mule deer like, I don't know. I feel like they're really in trouble when I'm around. <laughs> Dude, they I are. You are so good at that desert habitat. Desert and Oh, man. I mean, I I had a um, – like, uh, you are really good at hunting those desert mule deer. Yeah, that is your forte. You spend a lot of time doing it. Um, you're really proficient at it, and then you're really good at killing them when you do find them. So how would you say some of your desert – tactics differ from some of the high country or the foothills or some of that um because they are lower deer density so are you focused on covering a lot of country until you can turn up that buck 
or do you just um, develop country where these bucks show up and rut at, or or what would you say some of your specialized desert tactics are? Um, I hunt sign in the desert more than anything. Do you? Wow. I hunt I hunt sign in the desert more than anything. Um, so I I cover a lot of country to find the right sign. When I find the right sign, then my tactic switches 180. Once I find the sign that I want to hunt, then I'm committed to an area. Uh, or let's say I'll have like four or five places that I'm committed to that I no hold. Then I climb the biggest darn mountain I can find. I mean, 2,000 feet straight up, let's go. If, it, if we have to leave at 3 in the morning, you know, let's go. If we have to freaking darn near mountain climb, like let's go whatever it takes to get high so long as that mountains within say five miles of where that sign is um they're in some serious trouble man i love that very okay. serious trouble so you are looking for the absolute master vantage points whatever effort it takes to get there to give you the best look at that country that's where you're going to hike to after you find the sign so the sign are you looking for tracks, for trails, for rubs, for all of the above, or are you taking hikes all like the into the okay? And so you're taking hikes like into the flats or into the desert country, kind of looking for sign and kind of like heat check spots, or how do you do that, Marlon? Yep, pretty much. Yeah, okay. I'm just uh, I'm doing little uh, little kind of like spike hikes, just running out in and and like you said, like a heat check. You're just going in and, and kind of getting a general feel for an area, seeing how they're using it, seeing how they're using the washes, seeing what the rubs look like, um, seeing where the heaviest concentrations are going to be. I mean, and obviously, you know, when you're hunting the rut, finding the does is really all I care about. I don't care about seeing a buck. Um, and then once I find several concentrations, I know I'm going to find what I want and, and I'll hit them really hard. And, you know, the funny part is, is that I feel pretty comfortable uh with the desert stuff in that a majority of people won't put in the effort because it's just difficult from the get-go um meaning that finding the right sign is a mystery to almost i would say about 95 percent or greater um of understanding how to look at sign and the other side of it is is finding the right vantage points above the sign is tricky and then some of the spots that we climb up are they're scary i mean i'm not gonna lie like they're 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 precarious you know they're not just most of these mountains are desert mountains have a tendency to be either big long rollers or cliffed out jagged sketchy freaking peaks there's not really much of an in-between especially the ones that are over the flats you don't really have like nice rolling hills they're really generally pretty sketchy um and you have to watch yourself and getting up them is a chore and then the other thing is that if you don't have big eyes like you're not going to see anything your 15s are useless you're just you're just out there being in the wind pretty much um so and then staring through a spotting scope trying to spot stuff from you know three four miles away and and getting it to bed and then watching it for six eight hours is like it's you're gonna have the worst headache can be absolutely miserable 
so there's so many things that really line up, um, you know, an effort and, and kind of putting everything together in a meaningful way that allows us to, to get in a position on these desert bucks. Um, it's all about uh, lining all of those things up, going in, scouting, finding the right vantage points, knowing the animals are there, using the right equipment, um, and then knowing the behavior once they're, that you're in that situation. That's why I think you see such a low number of uh, desert mule deer actually, you know, being killed and posted. And I mean, you know, low desert. I don't mean pinion and juniper country. I don't consider those de- desert deer. They're not desert deer. I'm talking about the stuff that lives in the saguaros, the stuff that lives in the Palo Verde and the Ironwoods, the stuff that's like uh, what I would quantify as a, as a true desert mule deer. Yeah. That's tough, tough hunting. It is tough hunting. Um, uh, you couldn't be more spot on. I love listening to you talk about it, the the skill sets involved and, and kind of the tactics involved and just how tough it is. And and I know that's a skill that I have to continue to, de- to develop for myself is hunting desert mule deer. You know, and I don't get much of a chance living up north. You know, you, I, I maybe get one chance a year to go down to the desert and go try my skills. And yeah, I mean, if I'm being completely honest... I'm a little lost down there. I'm a little out of my element. I'm still trying to figure it out and develop my skills down there. But, you know, just even those those tactics that you just d- described, which, you know, are like second nature to you, like like that helps me out immensely. You know, just the the looking for sign. Uh, I love what you talked about, about the extreme peaks and, and how rugged they are. And people just aren't willing to put in that effort for lower deer densities to go down there. But there's some big bucks that get to grow up down there. So you talked about the big eyes. So 15s do nothing. And you're right. You cannot stare and stare through a scope and try to glass things up. Like it's good maybe for bedding timber, bedding cover, or high country stuff, or looking through it for a period of time. But you cannot spend all day behind a scope squinting. It just doesn't work. The eye relief is so much better like on bigger binoculars. Now, as I say bigger binoculars, I'm talking 15s. But you're talking – like absolute big eyes are critical for the desert because you're looking over like you're trying to spot deer from three to 10 miles away, not the one to three miles away. So that's where you're using those big eyes. And which ones do you prefer? Do you use the Koas? Are those what you use? So if it's, it's my, if it's a nearer glassing, um, I'll use the 1856 UHD by Vortex, the razor. Yep. I just got a set of those this year. That works pretty well on the tighter stuff. Yep. Um, but a lot of the stuff in particular in the Sonoran Desert, um, you're just so outclassed by the country. The country, a lot of people will argue that you can do it with 15s um, until they sit next to me. And then they're literally like, oh, damn. Like, not even a comparison you're so undergunned by the country the country is just so big that it will stipulate a whole different set of tactics and 15s are just kind of like you're an obsolete hunter you're not going to get it done i mean you will i mean don't get me wrong like you'll see animals and uh but i'll see probably three times more than you will and very fast and the other thing is, is, you know, a lot of these animals are covering some significant amounts of ground and the desert is thick. It looks, 
doesn't look too thick when you're looking down at it. I mean, you see the washes and the arroyos, and you see the the way that the uh, Palo Verde and the, and the the creosote and all the greasewood and every, or the uh, ironwoods, you know, kind of inter interweave and whatnot. But the the difficult part about it, Brian, is that uh, when they're down on the washes, like you're watching bits and parts moving through a wash, you know, four miles away. So you need to know what bit and part of that animal it is, which one it is, what group it's in, how many are there, and, like, where it bedded. You just simply can't do that in 15s. Like, a mile out in 15s, maybe two miles out if you're lucky, is, like, your threshold with 15s. I don't even think that. I mean, you're lucky. A mile and a half out with 15s is about your effective, like, quality Glassing range. You might be able to see a deer from two or three miles, but you're not going to find. You're not going to know where it bedded, what position it's in, where it's at, what's going on. Um, there's a lot more to. You want to know, you know, how to effectively hunt mule deer in the desert. I mean, I'll. We can get on a call offline, and I'll tell you exactly what you need to do. It's it's a whole different skill set. It's a whole different bag of bag of tricks like you cannot hunt desert like you hunt the mountains first off the deer aren't in the mountains so you're not even looking at the mountain not for the big ones anyhow i mean i there's an exception for every one big buck that you see up on the mountain there's you know a hundred that you're missing below it um so it's a just a different it's a different different wheelhouse yeah it's a different beast no you you couldn't you couldn't be more spot on the way you're describing it and and you're absolutely right like glass is built for certain distances and you get outclassed in those distances can you spot deer further yes but you can't see the detail that you're talking about you can't pick up a deer walking through the cover or pick out where it bedded down so i completely understand what you're saying but yeah it's a it's a different set of skills down there and i have learned that hard lesson about looking for him in the mountains where i where i think a mule deer should be and where my brain tells me to look is not where they're at they like those big flats they they like being down in in those bottoms and things. And so, yeah, I've had to adjust my skills and, and to be honest, I've really enjoyed like the learning process of just learning something completely new, but a species that I'm really familiar with. So I've really enjoyed it. That's a, I, I know I've taken a lot of your time, but it was just a couple questions that I just had to ask. So that, that big glass that you talk about, and I have looked through a uh, big glass before now, the, the tricky thing with big glass is that you can miss what's close to you, too. Do you end up, like, glassing what's close to you with 10s or 15s and then looking through the big eyes far? Or do you have, like, a grid pattern that works for those things to glass, like, uh, you know, near and far with them? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of answers to your question. Um, I will do a peripheral glass with my 10s up close, like... Maybe after I've glassed with the big eyes for 30, 40 minutes. Um, one thing to know is that oftentimes the deer like to work up into the arroyos and washes close to the mountains. The big bucks tend to push the does up there because they can corner them and breed them. So you'll see the deer working in and out of those washes up tight to mountains because of that. 
you'll see some deer moving in closer to the mountain, possibly next to you. The densities are so low, though, that the chances of them being, like, right below you, you know, are, like, 1 in 10. Like, you'll climb a mountain. You won't see that very often. Like I said, once in 10, you'll see a buck right there below you. And and it does happen. Um, But for the most part, you know, you want something that's at least 30 power, you know, and something that you can see really well out to, like, five miles with. And that's going to give you your best opportunity um, at finding animals. I would say the average deer that, you know, we find and hunt is, is, is over two miles away. It's well outside of the effective range of 15s to, like, know, you know, what's actually happening with that animal. Like, if there's somebody sitting through my glass and somebody sitting through some 15s, they're going to sit there and go, well, give me your glass. They're a pain in the butt to hike around, but there's no doubt about it that 10 ways till Sunday, they're going to want to be looking through my glass. Yeah, it makes complete sense. You know, and I've actually taken the that long-distance glassing. Like, that's effective out west, too. Like, sometimes it's just thinking outside the box of being able to glass farther, like – I know, you know, elk are so nomadic, but I use like long range glassing for elk. Like you can see them a long ways away. And when you're a long ways away, you can see a lot more country. And so, you know, there's time periods. Well, my valley is 15 miles wide and I find myself glassing from my house, but I can glass drainages way across from me and see where the population of elk are and then go hike up there. And same thing in some of these other units I hunt. Sometimes I'm upwards of 10 miles away from the range, but I'll just take a morning or I'll just take an evening session and I'll glass from way far. And I'm just trying to find where those animals are at so I can put myself in them. So that, that long range glassing, you know, that's a tactic that you can use in multiple different places. And a lot of times it's just thinking outside the box. And I know even for like high country mule deer, a lot of times I'll glass way back from the range, just trying to find the numbers up there. And it's tough to tell how big they are from that far, but I can tell they're bucks and I can tell there's good populations of bucks up there. So now it's worth that seven mile hike or the eight mile hike to get in there and go hunt it. Uh, but I use that tactic quite a bit. Um, Man, I just love hearing you talk about hunting desert mule deer. It's so foreign to me. Like, I feel like everything you say, I, I'm taking notes on, and um, I, I'm learning. You know, from from everything you mentioned to me, I'm I'm taking in. Uh, it sounds like a really fun way to hunt. You like hunting that desert, don't you? It it, it is definitely some of my favorite. And uh, but you know, I mean, I don't. I, that's the thing about it, Brian. It's like I don't overly love well overly love one over another i equally love them all and they just have their each have their place in my heart it's almost like saying do you love one kid more than another i mean i don't know maybe one likes to go hunting with you more so you might pay a preference but (laughs) you can't love a kid any more than the other (laughs) oh you're spot on i love it all it's just so great it's like it's you know as i mean Long range glassing is so effective. That's like one of my primary strategies for locating. And then once I locate, then I, you know, hone in and find like where I need to be and which one I want to be on. Like for sure, that's, that's a a key strategy, but you know, finding a favorite is almost like, gosh, listening to a pika chirp or hitting, you know, feeling the crisp fall air of the rut in my lungs. Like they're two different feelings. 
and smelling the creosote after it rains. You know that greasewood, how it smells after a desert rain during the rut, you know, in the southern, it's like, it's not even a shadow of what, it's, it's nothing close to what the Colorado mountains or the Utah mountains or the, the, the high country of Montana or Wyoming could offer, right? It's not even close. There's no comparison to that creosote desert country. But there's something magical that will captivate you with each season. And it'll draw you in and suck you in and take all your time and money and <laughs> challenge relationships and, and, you know, tell yourself, oh, I need to save more for this piece of equipment. And now next year I want to go over there. And it's just such a, a wild and amazing pursuit. I, I don't think that um, I, I could talk forever on it. I could keep going and people will end, end up eventually tuning out because they're like, okay, these guys. They're a little too obsessed. <laughs> <laughs> well, we uh, we definitely have issues, but uh, yeah, it is something about hunting mule deer. It's uh, why they're my absolute favorite to hunt. Is the places they take us, and as what a great answer you had for that because they are so different. And and the same the same way the Badlands have this special place in my heart. So does the high country, and so does the foothills, and so does the desert. And they're unique in their own right. But I just love all these wild places mule deer take us. And uh, I don't know if I'm hardwired for it. Uh, well, I know I'm I'm hardwired for it. But there's just some love I have with all the country they live in, and some so much beauty in the places they live in. And some people think the desert is ugly i think the desert is beautiful and there's nothing better like sitting above a a vantage point in the desert when the lights are coming on it it sounds like a jungle down there all the noises coming from it and all the birds chirping and all like that is a wild place and it's just full of life down there you know so you're right each place is special in its own right but one is not better than the other no way man i'm like i'm I'm chomping at the bit to like, you know, be traversing through fields of cactus and up big mountains before the light comes up to, like you said, as that light casts over the desert, it's just a freaking magical thing. I can't wait for it. So yeah, I, I'm in complete agreement there, man. Well, um, Marlon, I could talk to you all day. I have burned – we have gone through a couple hours already. I knew this podcast would go long, but I just appreciate your time so much, and I I really appreciate your willingness to share information with the audience and share what helps make, make you successful. Um, man, I just can't thank you enough. This has been one of the one of my favorite podcasts that I've ever done. Um, I just love talking mule deer, and I love talking to you. And uh, I know we mentioned it a couple times in the times in the podcast, but we've got to put a hunt together. We we've uh, we've got to put one together for next year and share the mountain somewhere. It'd be so fun. So, um, man, brother, I thank you so much. I, as a kindred spirit, with the utmost respect and and adoration and and love and just the human spirit of who we are and and our physical essence on this earth right now and just having the ability to be a cerebral being and you know in in our own way having our own level of enlightenment to the outdoors and the magic of of what this earth truly is to us uh and what it represents in our own spiritual journey as our physical walk on this earth progresses i mean i 
you know, we can't get back the time that we spend together. And for the people that are out there listening to us, um, you know, the time that you spent listening to us as, as I mature and I get older, I, I appreciate the fact that people would spend part of their life listening to what we say or, you know, what we think or our philosophies or our ideas, not that they're exacting right or that they're perfect, but that, you know, we walk this journey together with this beautiful life and this admiration of these amazing animals. Um, and, you know, it's just my greatest hope that in sharing some of these stories and sharing some of these experiences, um, they enrich others and encourage others and that we are able to motivate in a positive way and um, just usher forward something great for not only hunting, but our outdoors family and community. And um, I couldn't agree more, man. I appreciate you immensely. I appreciate your time. Like, you know, you'd never imagine. Um, and, and like I said, you're, you're doing the best job out there. I mean, it's, it's such a well-received, well-respected, platform and, and you're doing such a great job and and yes i definitely think that we need to we need to be hitting the, the mountains together I, I might be a little slower than you but i promise i'll, I'll catch up <laughs> oh, i'm not worried about it a bit um yeah yeah we got to share the mountain somewhere uh it was really well said um Likewise, man. Uh, thanks for the compliment, and I just really appreciate you and everything you do for for hunting and 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 promoting positivity and encouraging guys out there, man. Um, you're just the best. So uh, I really appreciate it. Let's keep in touch. Will do, brother. You have a wonderful um, Christmas and a happy New Year, and we'll see you on the flip side of this uh, crazy year we've had. Sounds like a plan. All right, guys, that's a wrap. Man, super fun conversation. I really enjoyed that. Uh, man, um, Marlon is so dedicated to his craft uh, of, of archery hunting and, and hunting mule deer. And um, I, I just really enjoyed the in-depth conversation. And, and it's so fun to just compare and contrast. There's different styles of hunting that work. And and to be able to talk to another successful hunter they may play situations a little different. I learn from that, and 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 I improve and get better from that. Uh, just to know there's another angle or another way to look at things, and and um, Marlin is definitely proficient at what he does, and um, he's also very articulate and explains things really well and where he's coming from. So I just really enjoyed the conversation, and I hope you guys enjoyed it too. Uh, thanks so much to Marlin for taking the time and, and uh, recording a, a long podcast with me. Uh, I really appreciate him as well. Uh, I really I really like him as a person. Um, so that's a wrap on this podcast. I want to thank Zamberlin for supporting the podcast. Man, these, these sponsors are what makes this podcast go. Uh, they pay me for my time so I can take time away from my construction job, record these podcasts, uh, produce these podcasts, release them to you guys. I have a ton of time into it every week, every month, all year long. And uh, these companies that stand behind Eastman's and stand behind uh, uh, me and the podcast just mean the world to me. And I really believe in them as well. Uh, really fortunate to have the best sponsors uh, stand behind this podcast. So they're, they're companies that I believe in and products I believe in. And so it makes it easy to 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 partner with these companies and so i just can't thank them enough uh, all of our sponsors but for this episode i want to thank zamberlin boots 
uh, just building the highest quality boots. If you're in the market for new boots, make sure to check them out. Again, I like that 320 Trailite GTX is my favorite boot. Um, I've had two pairs of those. Um, and then I had uh, pairs before that. The, the 320 GTX actually replaced a boot that I really liked. So when they told me they were replacing that boot... I was a little nervous, but they knocked it out of the park. The 320 Trailite GTX uh, is better than than the boot that they replaced, and um, it, it's just an awesome boot that I absolutely love. Uh, again, Marlin is using Zamberlin as well, so uh, thanks to those guys and, and for their support. Thanks to Eastman's and their support of this podcast. Um Man, uh, just just ready. Last hunt of the year for me. Oh, well, I guess the year's um, already ended. But, uh, you know, I, I kind of count this this January hunt as part of my 2020 season, right or wrong. Uh, so so my last hunt of the year before we get into off season and tag season and um, and start looking towards uh, spring bear and that. So, um, man, I just love this life I live and uh, I love being passionate and um, hungry for life. To, to win each and every day and and get better every day I'm doing something to get better at bow hunting uh, so uh, really been working with that new bow so impressed by that v3 that thing is shooting some groups I tell you uh, shot some indoor with it the other day I mean it's my hunting bow set up at 70 pounds micro arrows I, I shot a 293 my first game Vegas and then shot a 297 and I can do better. I was clean through five ends. And not that I'm an indoor guy or anything of that nature, but, you know, I like, I like shooting, you know, 3D. I like shooting indoor. I like, I just like all the different disciplines with archery and really trying to improve my game. And that indoor really challenges me, has me aiming at the center of the target. And it's, it's like this micro accuracy, trying to hit the size of a quarter, uh, 30 times in a row. And, um, so, so I do really enjoy it, and um, I got to shoot some more indoor games, uh, and and just keep working at my craft. Just keep working with that bow day in day out, and um, I, you know, I I had that that miss that you guys can watch on the Beyond the Grid or whatever that I was telling you about. Um, that uh, that's our internet TV show. So. You know, I have that that miss on there, and I uh, just want to work hard in this off season and um, avoid those for for years to come or next season or what. I missing is just the worst, but uh, you know, it is part of the game and it is part of telling that story. But um, yeah, I just um, man, I want to put in the work. I want to improve. Uh, you know, uh, there's there's room for me to get better. There's room for me in, to improve. Uh, I, I'm still getting better at this Western hunting game and, um, I just absolutely love it and putting everything into it. And this off season or this season will be no different. Uh, just super passionate and fired up to put in the work and, and get better. So, um, right on. I really appreciate you guys. I really appreciate you guys listening into the podcast, the shares, the reviews really help me out on the different podcast platforms and, uh, you know, I just want to continue to do this podcast and bring you guys this next level information. So uh, I really appreciate all of you guys. Um, keep working hard towards your goals. I mean, I'm I'm just an average guy like you, an average carpenter living in Montana. 
you know, that has found this love of bow hunting and worked really hard at it and, and been able to get to the level where I'm at, where I do multiple adventure hunts a year. And uh, so it's possible for, for everyone and anyone out there willing to put in the work. So just keep working hard towards your goals, guys. And uh, with that, I'll check in with you next week.